your student radio station on 12.51 a.m. This is your role. Good evening. Four years ago, Donald Trump upset the odds by winning the presidential election, his campaign defined by his promise to make America great again. Since then, he has presided over one of the most unpredictable, at times improbable, presidencies. Key moments, including impeachment, appointing three Supreme Court justices, pulling out of international agreements, increased protests against racial injustice, and currently presiding over the US's coronavirus response. Tonight, Trump is seeking four more years as president, but standing in his way, Joe Biden, Barack Obama's vice president and the oldest presidential candidate in history, who after overcoming a tough democratic primary, promises to restore stability to the White House, unify the nation, and in his campaign's words, save the soul of America. Tonight, Raw 12.51 AM will be with you all the way as America decides whether to elect Donald Trump or elect Joe Biden as President of the United States. To introduce to you the President-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. In the race for the White House, Joe Biden is officially the Democratic Party nominee for president. Let vote now. Make sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question because the question is the question is the question left. Would you shut up, man? Who is it? It's all been building up to this. Don't miss the moment with Raw 12:51 a.m. Across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Indeed, it has all been building up to this. Good evening and welcome to Raw 1251 AM's US election coverage. One of the most eventful election campaigns in living memory comes to an end tonight as America votes to choose its next president. My name is Cam Hall and I'll be taking you through to 9pm tonight, previewing the presidential election and the key races for Congress. From 9 p.m., Luke James will be taking you through the final hour, previewing key races at state level and wrapping up our preview show. And then from 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, Johnny Jenkins will be taking you on air through the results as we get them, with Luke James taking over at 9 a.m. to map out the state of play. And joining us on both shows will be an excellent team of Warwick students providing in-depth analysis of the latest developments and what this means for America and indeed the world and a team of state correspondents providing insights on the key races to watch out for tonight and indeed how this impacts the election overall. And we want you to get involved with your thoughts. Do you agree with our analysis? Who do you want to win more importantly? Comment throughout the evening, tweet us at Raw1251am and we will read them out throughout the show. So yes, welcome to the US election coverage. This is our coverage here on Raw. Over the next three hours, as I said, I'll be taking you through the key presidential races tonight the key races as well for Congress and as well from 9pm, Luke will be taking you through, giving you a rundown over what has, it must be said, has been one of the most eventful elections in some time. Tonight, America chooses whether to re-elect President Trump or elect Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States. And of course, a lot of key races tonight. Both candidates looking to secure that magic 270 Electoral College votes that takes them to the White House and ultimately secures them that inauguration on January 20th. A lot of people, of course, to talk to tonight about what is surely going to be a fantastic night. So let me introduce my first analyst tonight to bring us through the first few hours. So let's firstly bring in Adam Gravley, 
Good evening, Adam. Hello. It's gravely, but don't worry about it. Everyone gets that wrong. I, I, I if that's the only mistake I make tonight, I will be honoured, and if I will take that as a positive. Mi- if that's the only mistake, then that is an absolutely cracking job. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on, Adam. Um, before we start, I guess, what have you made of the election campaign? Because I have, as I kind of said in the introduction, it's been one of the most eventful in some time. It's been one of the most eventful and also one of the most scary, really, about what is going on, because we've seen, um, well, it, it's an unconventional president that we've got in the in the Oval Office. Uh, and even before the actual campaign itself, we had the nomination process uh, in which Joe Biden had a really sticky time of it until uh, sort of quite late in the game. And we've seen the virus has completely upended the campaign and it culminated in that in that debate where, as the clip said, where he, where Joe goes, you shut up, man, that it, it, it just really showed how divisive and how difficult this campaign has been. Well, I was it was an iconic moment. I remember just sitting watching it sort of about half two in the morning and just completely just. Uh, yeah, it was brilliant. It's the sort of thing you didn't expect normally at half two in the morning. Certainly woke me up, kept me going for that debate. Well, let me bring in uh, someone else now. Um, Neil Joshi, good evening to you. Hello there. Hi. Um, firstly, how are how are you doing? Um, I'm doing great, yeah. Really excited now, to be here tonight. No, absolutely. It's great to have you on. And I've got to ask you, same question I asked to Adam. This has been a very eventful campaign. I've got to ask, what has been the one thing that's really stood out to you, really? Um, it's... Just sort of the the exception of, exceptionalness of the entire campaign. It's something you, you would um, you'd be hard pressed to see any time um, in living memory. And obviously, this is you know these are extraordinary times, and this is probably the most extraordinary campaign to have probably happened yet. Where I mean, it's going on in the midst of massive um, division, and of course, the entire coronavirus situation. So it it's really going to be one of these campaigns that tests the limits of the sort of institutions of liberal democracy. And I guess we'll see how that unfolds tonight. Well, of course, that is a lot of debate, not just on the election itself, but the mechanisms of the election. Not only, of course, the Electoral College, something that people have been debating about for quite a long time, but indeed mail-in voting, the validity of votes. There's so much we can be talking about tonight on democracy. Of course, America proclaims itself as the world's greatest democracy. Tonight will be a very interesting test of that indeed and let me well bring in my final analyst for the first hour of this show will kingswood good evening good evening how are you i'm doing very well yourself yep i'm great this is probably the first time i've really engaged with the election last time i was too young and i remember waking up and finding out that donald trump had been elected president which was a bit of a shock (laughs) yeah of course and i've got to ask you as well obviously this has been quite campaign of course that you talk about the shock of donald trump in 2016 that of course the polling was suggesting that hillary clinton was going to win donald trump obviously won in the end what have you made of this campaign do you get the sign because the polls at the moment are going and putting joe biden in the lead do you think similar do you think the polls will get it right this time or do you think anything from this campaign has kind of made you thought otherwise i think i a bit under if the lessons from the last campaign have been learned because you've got the clear Biden lead, but is there a Trump? Is there a secret Trump supporting base? And has that been enlarged this time? Because in 2016, while Trump was unconventional, 
it was still reasonably okay to survive him. But in 2020, after four years of after four years of like controversy with the George, like his support for white supremacy from some for some areas. Uh, sorry, but so would people who have been improved by Trump a Trump presidency really want to admit that they had voted for him? Or would they pretend they had voted for Biden just to save face in a way? Well, that, of course, is something that Donald Trump, he's talked about, the silent majority, talk about shy voters a lot. It's going to be a very interesting night. It's great to have um, Adam, Neil and Will. And they'll be joining us throughout the first hour of the show, really taking us through the nuts and bolts of the presidential race. Of course, the presidential race started as early, I believe it was as early as January last year, when Tulsi Gabbard threw her hat into the ring to be the Democratic nominee for president. Since then, we had up to, I believe, 20 to 24 Democrats put themselves forward. 24 Democrats on that first debate stage at the end of July, eventually whittled down to Joe Biden. Of course, Bernie Sanders ran him very close in the end. It came down to that, but in the end, Joe Biden became the nominee. Donald Trump had a slightly easier run, shall we say, to the nomination. Only former Governor Bill Weld stood against him, provided very little challenge there. And so, We've ended up with the situation we have now where it is Donald Trump and Joe Biden going for president tonight. And of course, we, we've touched upon it so far, just how unpredictable this campaign has been. A lot of key policy debates, a lot of key moments throughout the campaign, whether that be, of course, Kamala Harris in the first debate talking about um, debating Joe Biden on his record on busing. We've had a lot of debates with the Democrat Party on healthcare, and of course, the impact of coronavirus as well. And how, how could we even forget Donald Trump's impeachment? So much has really happened over that last year. So much really has gone on in this campaign. So if I can go to my panel once again quickly. Um, Neil, let's come to you first. Um, this has felt, many people thought 2016 was a very unpredictable campaign that Donald Trump sort of rewrote a lot of the political rule book when he came in. How has this campaign gone, do you feel, kind of differently to 2016. Do you think it's more of the same rewriting of the rule book or do you think that some form of normality has come back throughout it? Um, well, what was interesting about 2016 and, and the way we sort of um, understand how Trump won that election was that um, a lot of people think that obviously there was quite a bit of hubris on the side of the Democrats, especially with um, with the leading candidate as well, uh, Hillary Clinton. But obviously, um, if we look at the polls, the the polling, while it did favor Hillary, was still had some level of Trump being within the margin of error. And so a lot of the um, sort of things we see that people often reference when it comes to 2016 was a lot of the projections based off of um, from news outlets such as the Huffington Post and such, where they had, you know, the 99% chance that Hillary would win. So these things actually get um, sort of pointed out a lot. But in reality, the, the polling was more or less accurate. And, I, and with regards to this um, year's election, it, the polling has actually gotten a lot better as well. So obviously there are some inaccuracies last in 2016, and maybe that's why we can account for a larger lead for Hillary then. But I feel like this election in terms of how sort of accurate it is to the polling will probably be more reflective, but that is contingent on the amount of votes counted. So obviously a strategy for Trump here is going to be to try and sort of declare the election in his favor as early as he can and as convincingly as he can as well, because as the physical ballots, the ones that people have lined up today to um, and are lining up right now to, you know, cast, 
those things are going to be coming in soon within the next few hours. And so um, as Trump sort of uh, favors more of the in-person voting, um, he will try and more or less delegitimize the uh, sort of process of the mail-in ballots, which he has been doing um, for the entire time. And as a result, contingent on to what extent the mail-in vote, um, mail-in votes are counted, we could either see a very, very um, sort of what we could say is a normal election. Um, but if obviously they're not really counted, then we're going to have a very, very contested um, election and a very, very stressful next few days. Well, yes, absolutely. And of course, we will. One thing to mention, we'll be talking a lot about mail-in voting. We'll be talking a lot about, of course, the polls tonight. And indeed, when the polls will be closing, the first polls will be closing at 11 o'clock tonight, when it will be Kentucky and Indiana, the polls close there. And we'll get the first data through, hopefully, as to how the Electoral College will be awarding its votes. And Adam, let's come to you quickly, because obviously the Electoral College, that is the one that ultimately this result is contingent on tonight. Can you talk a little bit about the Electoral College, sort of explain it through for our viewers watching us right now? Yeah, so the Electoral College is quite an arcane um, sort of element uh, that is actually under, uh, enshrined in the United States contribution now, uh, Constitution, should I say. So um, the, uh, th these are essentially the presidential electors. And what will happen, there are uh, currently 538 uh, sort of electors um, who are the, these people that then come together, and I think they come together in December, if I'm right in thinking, and what they do is they cast their vote um, based upon a proportional system subject to however many electoral college votes that that state has, which is to do with their size and what have you. And that is where we get this magic 270. Uh, so 270 is where there is an absolute majority over the 538 votes. So the elect the people who actually go out to vote, they themselves are technically not voting for the president. They are voting <laughs> For to direct the electoral college to cast the vote. Well, of course, the electoral college is one of those institutions that comes up for debate so many times. But it is how tonight's results will be decided, and of course, it is done on a state by state basis as well. And in all states apart from Maine and Nebraska, if you win the state, you take the maximum votes. Even if you don't get a majority, as long as you get the most votes in that state, you take all of the votes in that state. And it does differ between states as well. California, largest state by population in the US, that's got 55 electoral college votes. Little Rhode Island, only three votes. So very interesting to see how this develops throughout the night. And Will, if I can come to you very quickly, obviously one of the most important things tonight is the swing states. What states are we going to be looking out for as we go throughout the evening? So the swing states are the states that can go either Republican or Democrat. You've got states like California, New York, that will probably vote Republican until the world ends. You've got states like Alabama who will go, who, oh, sorry, California and New York will go Democrat, Alabama will go Republican. We're looking at states like Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that flop election election from Democrat to Republican. And that is how a candidate would win the presidency by winning these states. No, absolutely. And of course, many of those we talked about there were the key ones that came up in 2016. It's going to be very interesting to see how they go tonight. Well, we will see um, Neil, Adam and Will very shortly. But um, it's again, it's great to see everyone getting involved throughout on our social media as well. That's really how we want you guys to be getting involved. We want to hear what you have to say. Johnny Jenkins has commented so far saying 
good evening to the team and it's very good evening to see you watching us, Johnny. Now, obviously talking about the Electoral College, it is those key states that we are looking for tonight. And the Rust Belt was a region that, of course, Donald Trump took in 2016. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. These were three states that Donald Trump won in 2016. They hadn't been taken by a Republican candidate since the 1980s. Um, what many seen it as a shock. No candidate, certainly the Democrats, hadn't campaigned in any of those states since late July. And since then, we've seen a real change. The Democrats have put a lot more effort into these states. We saw Joe Biden holding a lot of rallies yesterday in Pennsylvania. So now let's bring in some correspondents to really talk about those states in a bit more depth. So firstly, let's bring in our correspondent for Pennsylvania, Imogen Harper. Good evening, Imogen. Hello. And our correspondent for Michigan and for Wisconsin, Robert Allison. Good evening to you. Hi, Cam. Good to be here. Great to have you on. So if I can start off with Pennsylvania, Imogen. So Pennsylvania was 20 electoral college votes. It was a state that really Donald Trump, not many people expected him to take in 2016, but it was a stake that he took in the end. What, where, where do you think we are at the moment in Pennsylvania? Um, I think probably it is obviously leaning towards Biden at the moment. So you're seeing he has about um, a five or six point percentage lead over Trump. Um, obviously, Biden was grew up in Pennsylvania and he spent a lot, a lot of time in Pennsylvania because Previously, it had been Democrat for two decades before it was turned in 2016. So this is something that they're really trying to get back. And of course, the amount of electoral college votes it has, that is very integral to that, um, to, to Joe Biden's campaign. So yes, we are seeing uh, a lead um, of Biden over Trump at the moment. But as we know, that can, that can change very easily. Um, uh, so at the moment, obviously, some votes have been cast. A lot of people are using mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. And so about I think it's, there's about 10 times more votes cast now than it was this time four years ago. So that is definitely a very um, common method of voting in Pennsylvania. And that really could be uh, play an important role uh, in the few days after the election with, with Trump. No, definitely. Let's, let's get, just get quickly get some data in on Pennsylvania, just to kind of give everyone watching a bit more of a sense of the context with the state. So um, this was a state that Donald Trump took by a very small margin in 2016, it took with 48.2% of the vote, Hillary Clinton got 47 and a half percent. In 2012, to give that a bit of context, it was a state Obama won with 52% of the vote, Mitt Romney on 46.6. So it was a state that Donald Trump certainly overtook by quite a margin. And of course, 20 electoral college votes, vital to, of course, bring you towards that 270. Um, currently, Joe Biden is said to have a 94% chance of winning tonight. And, of course, you mentioned uh, mail-in voting as well. That's quite a key factor in Pennsylvania because, of course, from the early voting so far, um, turnout hasn't seemed to be very high. So what, 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 what do you think? Do you think we're going to get a lot more voting in person and when, when the mail-in ballots are counted in Pennsylvania? Just how much of a difference do you think that's going to make? And do you think that is something that, given Donald Trump's opposition to mail-in voting, could serve to throw Pennsylvania into doubt a bit? Um, so, yeah, obviously it is a bit of a contentious issue and it could completely change the result of the election. So recently uh, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, they ruled that... Um, 
ballots coming in three days after election day were allowed to be counted. Um, and of course, this was appealed to the US Supreme Court. However, that was a split tie down, down the middle because Amy Cooney Barrett hadn't been appointed yet. However, this will be reappealed to the Supreme Court and that probably would see a flip to the other side. But of course, I'm not sure if that's going to have time to happen before mail-in ballots um, are counted. But I do think there's definitely a lot of pressure in Pennsylvania to make sure that these definitely aren't counted. And there's hopefully going to be no... Um, complication arising about them not being counted or not being able to be included if they don't arrive in time. Okay, Rob, I'm going to come to you now. Um, let's talk about obviously two other states, Michigan and Wisconsin. Michigan, 16 electoral college votes, Wisconsin, 10. Again, two states won by very small margins by Donald Trump, overturning quite significant uh, margins in the past. So if I can come to you firstly on the start to Michigan tonight, um, there's believed to be a 95% chance of um, Joe Biden winning Michigan, according to 538. Um, expected to get about 51% of the vote, Donald Trump, 45 at this moment in time. Wisconsin as well, that's a 97% chance of Biden turning that tonight. A state that Trump won by 1% in 2016. So looking at that and looking from what you've seen so far, how likely do you think that it is that Joe Biden will be able to flip Wisconsin and Michigan back to the Democrats tonight. I think if you look purely at the polling, Biden's got a decent chance. Um, the only poll I can see here that's given Trump any sort of lead in the past long while has been a Republican-sponsored pollster. So obviously there's an imbalance there. Obviously the polls might not account for the phenomenon that we've seen of the quote-unquote shy Trump voter, which he's banking on very much so tonight. He helped him over the line in 2016 really helped him run up the numbers in rural Michigan and rural Wisconsin, same in Pennsylvania, um, same across the entire country. Trump ran up the numbers in rural areas and then sort of peeled off some suburban voters. Whether he can do that tonight, I think, will decide how much tr success Trump has in seeking re-election and ultimately gaining it. Definitely. And one of the things that we've been talking about is in terms of the percentage of turnout from early voting so far. And just highlight Wisconsin quickly. 64.7% um, of the early voters there have come out. That's a percentage of 2016. Early voting's already accounted for 64.7% in Wisconsin. And indeed, in a lot of these battleground states, it is the turnout of Republican voters. People are expecting that's going to be the real deciding factor in how these states are won. Do you think, particularly in Wisconsin and Michigan, that that's true? It's that on-the-day turnout of Republicans that could keep them in the Trump column. I think so, yeah. I think you'll see a lot of energy in the early voting towards Biden. Obviously, he's really driven the mail-in voting campaign and really tried to get his supporters on board with that. Trump doing the exact same, but with on-the-day voting. So it's whether or not Trump is able to get enough of his supporters out, energised today, to offset the numbers Biden's already run up. No, definitely. And of course, just a quick stat as well on uh, Michigan quickly um 58.3 percent of the total electorate there so going to be interesting to see how that develops Imogen if I can just come back to you quickly on Pennsylvania that was the state that a lot of people were kind of banking on in 2016 it was the state that was seen as the one that would define how the election went do you agree with that in 2020 that Pennsylvania is the state that will decide the election 
Um, I think it will. I think there's definitely a lot um, of factors involved in this, but I do think that Pennsylvania, given the amount of electoral college votes it has and given how hard Joe Biden's been trying to really regain Pennsylvania, I do think that that could be one of the states that is definitely the tiebreaker in this election and there's definitely one to keep to keep an eye on for sure. Well, there's certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on tonight. Of course, those three states between them, 46 electoral college votes, it is something that's going to be very interesting to see. Just before we go, um, for you, for yourself, Rob, you have a fan watching tonight. Mia Allen says that she is standing <laughs> you, my friend. Well, thank you very much to Aww. Imogen and Rob there. Thanks very much for coming on. Have a great evening. Pleasure. So, obviously, that there, those three states in the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, states that Trump took quite a by surprise in 2016. Tonight, it'll be interesting to see how they go as well. Let me bring in now one of my analysts to talk about that. Let's bring in Neil to talk about those three states in particular. What, what do you make of um, the Rust Belt? How significant do you think that's going to be tonight? Um, I think the Democrats would have definitely learned their lesson from 2016. And I feel like these states, alongside obviously the big ones that we have in contention, like Florida, are going to be very, very important for um, either Biden or Trump to win. Um, with regards to um, Nebraska, if I'm correct, there was a, I feel like recently there was a lot that could swing the vote towards Biden this time around, especially with that massive scandal about um, the uh, the Trump administration or the Trump uh, campaign sort of getting, sort of abandoning voters in a, uh, in a field. And I feel like that is a very local um, scandal that can uh, really swing the vote in such a, uh, close time to the election. With regards to Michigan um, and other states like that, I think that because um, Hillary only lost by such a small amount in that state, that I feel like it is a bit more of a toss-up. It could go anyway. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the if the Democrats managed to pull um, Michigan as a state as well this time around. I feel, I feel like that they would um, think that it is really important to do. And I feel like that that's where they did obviously lose a lot of voters in 2016. And of course, you know, they're trying to play the game as well. So they will try and appeal. And I think they have been appealing to them as of late. And as a result, I think it could, I think it's favoring the Democrats in this case. No, absolutely. There's one state we haven't talked about yet. It will be coming to you slightly later, Ohio. Um, Ohio, many people believe that is one of the big bellwethers in this election. Do you agree that if Ohio goes, that that's maybe the state that will determine whether Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan will go to Joe Biden tonight? Um, I, I can't, uh, necessarily say that it would, um, sort of cause or, or that they're entirely correlated like that, but I feel like it would also be a good state for the Democrats to pick up because, uh, like I said before, um, they've, I think a lot of the reason why they sort of flipped to Trump in the last election cycle was that they felt that they had been sort of neglected the sort of like, um, post-industrial part of America has been neglected by the uh, Democrats who used to who used to help them out um, beforehand when they represented them more in terms of like when America was more industrialized. And as a result, um, if if it can be shown that these sort of Rust Belt states um, have sort of swung back to the Democrats, it might be um, a positive outlook in the future for the Democratic Party as well. If they can if they can hold on to these states, it makes it more likely that you know, they're, they have to appeal to lesser states in the next election cycle, as if they manage to capitulate more and more states that uh, previously would have been thought as 
swing states, then it sort of um, sort of creates like a, a Democrat-run stronghold on in the next few uh, cycles to come. So it'd be interesting to see who wins, and the most important thing is by how much they win, because that'll sort of um, set what kind of direction we'll be seeing these three states go in the uh, future. Okay, of course, the Rust Belt is not just those states as well. We're talking like Indiana, Illinois as well. Of course, Indiana, Illinois people, or certainly from previous polling is suggested to be more kind of safe Indiana for the Republicans and the Democrats as well for Illinois. Um, We're going to move on to some other states very quickly, but um, before we do, um, I just want to firstly say, Enoch Mukungu, our head of news, has just commented, saying, of course, goeth Ohio, goeth the nation, as they say. That is something we will come back to um, very shortly. But I want to talk about Donald Trump quickly, because obviously he is the incumbent president in this election. And it's been, a, as we said earlier, very unpredictable at times, four years for Donald Trump. And again, throughout the campaign, we've seen the impact of the coronavirus pandemic upon him. Um, it has been something that's been very interesting to watch. So I want to go to my analysts quickly just to see whether they think Donald Trump is the favourite tonight. And of course, how much of the last year with coronavirus, with, of course, his response to the killing of George Floyd as well, just how much that may have impacted his election chances tonight. So, Will, let's come to you first on that. So I think the fact that Trump being impeached is so far down the list of reasons why he's so controversial says a lot about him as a person. I think had COVID not come about, the case would have been a lot closer with him and Joe Biden, because Joe Biden isn't an especially inspiring leader. His main, I always feel his main attribute is that he's not Donald Trump, but Trump's handling of COVID has, in no other words, been relatively shambolic. Which has pushed him, which has pushed him southern voters away from him because they've seen how badly he dealt with it, which is make and that just really undermined his campaign over the last few months. Well, yeah, and that is, I guess, Adam. If I can come to you quickly, the f- impeachment being so far down the list at, of twenty twenty. Of course, Donald Trump in his rallies coming up to this year, and he's still doing it. Obviously, the economy, the lowest unemployment that America had had in years. And it feels 2020 may have thrown a spanner in the works almost for Donald Trump. Just how much of an impact do you think the events of this year have had on his re-election chances? So, yeah, well, I agree. The impeachment crisis is ancient history now for him. This year, 2020, is probably the year that if he, he... I personally think he was set to win the election beforehand. Now, I think 2020 with coronavirus, with the amount of infection, with all the horrific uh, deaths and suffering that the American people have gone through, and the fact that uh, Joe Biden has been able to stand there and um, essentially do a bit of a, no, I, I told you so, and you're not taking this seriously. I do think that that has caused the American people to turn around and be like, well, 
is the president of the United States, uh, the Republican candidate, is he the one looking after us? And we know that Donald Trump is going to appeal to his base and he has got his specific base. But then we start seeing the fact that um, African-American voters, uh, they have watched the horrific events uh, to do with George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, and they have now uh, an inspiring vice presidential candidate from the Democrats in Kamala Harris, who is we is going to be treated as the president in waiting because there is an argument to suggest that Joe Biden might not do the full term in office. Well, we will come on to talk about Biden and Harris in a bit. But Neil, if I can just come to you very quickly on, I guess, that point that Adam made there, which is with coronavirus and with, of course, Trump's response to the killing of George Floyd, which has in itself been very controversial. Just how much do you think that the events of 2020 have basically made, have basically thrown Trump's presidency into some doubt a bit? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. This has um, thrown a massive spanner into, into everything he's been trying to do for the last, you know, for this, uh, for the first half of his campaign, and um, obviously, everyone's had uh, a lot of people have had their issues with Trump for these last three years. But the interesting thing is this time that a lot of people, his own voters, in fact, are actually going to feel the consequences of his uh, his policy and some uh, his incompetence and etc. Because this is the first time, as a as a direct result, you know, the entire lockdown and pandemic situation. These are things that people domestically will be feeling. Usually, when we talk about what um, effects Trump has been doing on the world stage, it's it's all general foreign policy and things like that, where real average Americans don't necessarily um, impact from it or notice any difference at all. But with these last with this last year, that's all been thrown out the window and. People are actually feeling the the effects of a Trump presidency first and foremost, and not to mention his insane crackdown against um, peaceful protesters and the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, a lot of people are actually seeing, you know, feeling the heat at home this time around. So, I feel like that uh, will play a massive role in the uh, election to come. Yeah. Just one last thing before we head over to state correspondents quickly. You mentioned obviously the some of his successes potentially with foreign policy. And of course, what you mentioned as well, the Black Lives Matter protests is something that Trump's base was seen to get behind. Do you think that enough of the Trump voters, even those who are potentially wavering about him in 2016, do you think they've been turned off by some of his actions in 2020? Or do you think that that has almost galvanized them more into supporting Trump? Um, I, I believe that majority, well, not necessarily majority, but part of his base isn't necessarily married to the idea of a Trump presidency. They just happen to feel like he was the better candidate when it came to him versus Hillary Clinton. And so, as I was saying earlier, obviously, these people are more susceptible to being able to have their minds changed. And I feel like having the sort of pandemic that could have been avoided, um, restrictions could have been implemented a lot earlier and that we would be seeing more positive effects now. And so as a result, I feel like these people would think that, you know, Trump has actually made their lives worse um, in the last year. And these are the people who I think have a decent chance or if not a great chance of sort of switching sides and sort of abandoning this, uh, this sort of um, idealization of Trump and his campaign and his administration. Okay, well, I will see um, Neil, Adam and Will very soon again. Thank you very much. Um, Again, a lot more comments as well coming in. I would just like to bring in um, the CMP movies. Um, I have, I'm not sure who this is, whoever you are. Keep 
waver your anonymity. But um, Donald Trump has just, um, well, the comment is on Donald Trump, sorry. And the CMP Movies has just commented saying that um, Trump has shown that all he has is contempt for the American people with his corona coverage. Of course, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic has been a key issue in this election on both sides and something that has been, it's fair to say, controversial at times. Um, I believe this is truly bad choices. I mean, I mean, I must say, as a fan of the thick of it, I do appreciate the profile picture of Glenn Cullen there. Um, they have just commented saying that Trump was right to leave COVID alone. It's a fake threat. That is, of course, I'm not, I'm a neutral broadcaster, but we have obviously seen the impacts of coronavirus across the world. Um, let's move on now, because obviously we have, as I mentioned earlier, two very um, key states in this election, Ohio and Florida. Ohio and Florida, they've been the bellwethers for years. Ohio hasn't called the election wrong since 1960. Florida hasn't called the election wrong since 1996. And so let's now introduce two state correspondents to kind of talk us through both of those states. So firstly, for Ohio tonight, we have Noah Keats. Hello, and for Florida, we you. have Lily McKell. Good evening to the both of you. Hi. So Good evening. I want to start off with you, Noah. As Enoch's comment said earlier, I'll just bring it back on again. Go with Ohio, go with the nation, as they say. It hasn't got the election wrong since 1960. But do you think that there is a chance that that might happen tonight? Just to give you a bit of context, it is currently very much cast as 50-50, although Trump is seen to have a 56% chance at the moment to win that state. And it was a state that as well, Trump took by nine points in 2016. So it's a state that perhaps might not go with the nation tonight if it goes with Joe Biden. Potentially. I mean, I hadn't heard the phrase that um, Enoch mentioned earlier, but it is a brilliant one. As you say, since 1964, Ohio really has been a bellwether state. We saw Barack Obama winning a state in both 2008 and 2012. And in 2012, he won it by the slimmest of margins, 50.67% of the vote, but of course, enough to get him those 18 electoral college votes. And it will be fascinating to see whether Trump is able to hold on to his success in 2016, really having that you know, eight, nine point lead over Hillary Clinton with 51% of the vote. I had a look at some polling on 538 today and they're really, really showing that it is tight. One poll showing both candidates tied at 47% of the vote. And another one showing Joe Biden slightly ahead with 47% of the vote and Trump with 43% of the vote. So wherever you look with the polls, it is unclear. But as I say, these are 18 electoral college votes. And as we've seen, every vote does matter. Absolutely. And when it comes to Ohio, it says 18 electoral college votes quite a significant one to take you closer to that 270. One of the things that has always resonated in Ohio is a very conservative state, a lot of um, blue collar industrial workers as well. Um, nine counties swung from Barack Obama in 2012 to Donald Trump. Many of these conservative blue collar workers, do you think that they will still be galvanized to vote for Trump tonight? Or do you think that they will go back to Joe Biden. I'm not so sure that they will swing behind Donald Trump doing some research for the state. I found that General Motors car manufacturing industry within Ohio did shut um, during Donald Trump's presidency, meaning 1,700 jobs were lost. Indeed, uh, when conducting research, I found that over 300,000 jobs have been lost in Ohio and 29,000 of those specifically in manufacturing. So I think you are right to talk about voters that might be more socially conservative, more working class, that Trump, uh, despite his clear economically elite 
elite stages were able to win around. But I'm just not so sure that they'll be able to he'll be able to win them around this time, given that his campaign in 2016 and 2020 is so based on making America great again by having manufacturing within each of the states. Now, if you're shutting a General uh, Motors industry within Ohio, as I say, that provides a decent number of jobs. The message is not, not going to ring with reality. So I think those voters could either swing behind Joe Biden or just not vote at all. Though, as we've seen throughout the campaign, there has been huge numbers of mail-in voting and early voting. So it could just be that so frustrated are these people with having lost their jobs that they decide to swing behind Joe Biden. Definitely. Um, Lily, let's come to you now. So let's, let's talk about Florida quickly. So Florida's 29 electoral college votes. It was a state that um, Donald Trump won in 2016. He took 49% of the vote there. Hillary Clinton about 48%. Biden is currently two points up on the sort of taking polls of polls at the moment. Do you think that Florida will swing tonight? You know, it's going to be a very close one. Um, it is likely that it will be will turn blue. But um, in, in, in 2016, obviously... Um, Trump only won by one percentage point was very close and Florida is always very close. So it, it, it could be either way, really. Um, it'll be a very important one because of the 29 votes. Um, and we'll, I think it'll, it'll definitely be very influential in, in seeing who's going to win the overall election. Something very interesting to talk about in Florida quickly is turnout. And we've seen that turnout in Florida at the moment has already overtaken that of 2016. Who do you think benefits from that? Do you think it benefits Trump or Biden? I think it benefits Biden. Um, it is known that early voting is, I mean, Democrats tend to uh, vote early. And it could be that um, minority communities such as the Latino community and the African American community are turning out more and voting early. And this would be really good for Biden. But obviously, we're going to have to see today on Election Day, um, how many people show up then, because that, that'll often be Republicans. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, definitely definitely advantageous for Biden to have such a high turnout. Well, that is something that we will wait and see how that happens, of course, as the results come in throughout the night. I'm going to ask you both the same question, but Lily, if I can ask it to you. Um, do you think that Florida is a state that has been said in the past, if you win that, you can win the presidency. It hasn't got an election wrong since 1996. Do you think there's a chance tonight that Florida will not go with the nation? Yeah, I think um, it's just so tight there. Like it's really, it's always a few points. Um, you never really know who they're gonna vote for and it's always a surprise and it, it, um, it always um, is really, really close. So I feel like tonight it will, I think it will actually have a very influential uh, a very big influence on who will be president. I do. I think it will. It has a high chance of choosing the final candidate. Okay. Well, that is something we'll obviously see at the end of the night. Whether whether you're right on that point, there. No. If I can come to you, of course, Ohio doesn't have the same amount of electoral votes as Florida does, but the nation has seemed to have gone with Ohio. It's done so in every election since 1964. Do you think that it's going to stay with the nation tonight? 
I think there's a serious chance that it might not, because when people have been discussing the really serious swing states, Ohio has been broadly mentioned, but it's not been one of the key ones that's mentioned like Florida has been. I think my personal prediction is that if there are any problems with the US election, it will be because of Florida. Um, that was the case in 2000. And as Lydia was saying, it is always really tight between both parties. But I really think that given that what's happened in Ohio, as I was talking about with General Motors shutting down, I really think that would disenfranchise some people and really demoralise them for wanting to vote Republican given what Donald Trump has said. So I do think that if this turns out to be a brilliant night for Joe Biden and he ends up winning a landslide, of course, Ohio will be a part of that. But I also think the fact that Ohio hasn't been one of the key states mentioned, the fact that um, Donald Trump is still win uh, the 18 electoral college votes but lose the election means that, unlike what Enoch says, Ohio might not swing behind the winner for the first time in over 50 years. Yeah, that would be, in what has already been an extraordinary election, that, I think that would top it off. Noah, Lily, thank you very much. We will see you later. So as we um, as well, we continue to look through um, some of the other races when we continue to preview them. Enoch Mukungu has just um, commented, of course, Florida brings us 29 electoral college votes. To Enoch, we're just hallucinating it. I think 2000 would have quite a lot to say about that there, Enoch. Um, Will, if I can bring you in quickly just to talk about what Noah and Lily said there, these bellwether states in Ohio and Florida, there's a real chance that they won't go with them tonight. How, how significant do you think the vote will be in these two states as to who wins tonight's election? I, th I think if you see Florida going Biden, you may, I think it will be quite an early night because if Florida goes Biden, Florida has quite an old elderly population who tend to vote more Republican. But obviously, as we've seen with the coronavirus and the in, like disproportionate impact on older people if florida goes biden then it might be all over trump and obviously ohio that's been that's been uh right since 1960 but if any ele if any election is where it goes wrong it will definitely be this one i i, th I think that's a, that's a recurring theme it seems um of course i just one last thing really obviously talked about the Rust Belt states earlier as well. Where do you think this election, is it going to be in those bellwether states in Ohio and Florida, or is it going to be in the Rust Belt where this election is going to be won then? Well, I think it will probably be a combination of both. You've obviously got all the Rust Belt states have a relatively large electoral college power, quite a few electors. The bellwethers have a quite a, like, almost the largest electoral college power behind New York, Texas, and California. And I think Pennsylvania might be a special one, especially as we've seen in the last few weeks, sort of unrest in Philadelphia. That one might be the outlier. So if the other three go Biden, because people have seen the unrest cause that, that Trump has disavowed, Pennsylvania might go Trump and be the outlier in Rust Belts. Okay, that, that of course will be very interesting to see, of course, a lot of predictions on the importance of Ohio and Pennsylvania. That'll be something to see as we go throughout the night. Um, as you see, Neil and Adam have joined us again now. Let's talk a bit about Joe Biden, because obviously he potentially could be the president-elect after tonight. Of course, Joe Biden has already graced the White House as the vice president to Barack Obama. And obviously now as the Democrat nominee, this is his third time running for president, 1988 and 2008. He lost the fight for nomination both times. Tonight, it is Joe Biden going for the White House. Will it be a case of third time lucky for him getting the presidency 
this time. There's a lot to unpack there. And I guess, Neil, if I can come to you first, let's go back to that Democrat primary, because the Democrats are a party, yes, they are very unified in their not really liking of Donald Trump. But one thing it could be said is that they're a party that is very much divided within themselves over their vision of America. So do you think that Joe Biden very much represents what the Democratic Party is at this moment? Um, I I think in in a roundabout way, he, he actually does. And I know a lot of people um, make the sort of criticism, you know, he's just another establishment uh, candidate, you know, he's just another neoliberal or whatever. But if we just look at what he's done as of late, he's... Um, you know, people always like to talk about this divide between the more left-wing people in the Democratic Party. So people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, of course, and Ilano representatives, Ilan Omar, et cetera. And um, so interestingly enough, uh, throughout the Biden campaign, they ha- he has made a lot of concessions towards the, the, the left, as we would say. And uh, namely, his, his sort of climate change um, reform that he calls the Biden plan, I think. Uh, that has a lot of influence from people like Bernie Sanders. And he's also appointed um, him to a lot of the sort of commission for health care as well. And so obviously for some people, he's nowhere near as uh, as left enough um, as we would like. But I feel the the sort of the divide can be sort of bridged in this case because never before have, you know, progressives had such a good seat at the table. Obviously, when we look at the primary um, a lot of people thought Bernie Sanders had it in the bag. But in reality, if we look at the polls, and once again, the polls were quite accurate. It, for the longest time, if um, if you were thinking that Biden was going to win, it was probably the most boring primary for you. Because in a lot of these states, um, a lot of people say, you know, Bernie had a good chance at the beginning. He did. But once Super Tuesday came around and Biden just destroyed him, there wasn't really anywhere he could go. And I, I feel like um, we, we tend to see um, online that a lot of the Democratic Party is necessarily against Biden. But in reality, as as he said in the debates, he is the Democratic Party. And I feel that it, we can get, we've seen such a an erosion of things like social liberties and civil rights in the last sort of few years, um, especially for members of the LGBT community, that I feel like for now, a lot of these Democrats that might be divided might unite themselves over social issues as well. And obviously, if Biden gets into power, the, the, Demo- the, the sort of left-leaning Democrats have more more sort of leverage against him. And as a result, we can sort of pull the the Democratic Party further left. I guess the struggle for the Democrats is, you know, getting Biden in, in the White House in the first place. And then sort of the idea that that's, you cross that bridge when you get to it. No, absolutely. Adam, if I can kind of follow up with that with you now, because obviously, as Neil kind of pointed out, obviously Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg seem to be the people who are going to get the nomination after Iowa and after... Um, New Hampshire, then Biden kind of came back through, took what was PEBC seen as him being the favourite. And of course, since then, we've seen members from both wings of the party unite behind Joe Biden. And we've obviously seen through his choice of Kamala Harris as well, someone who is seen to very much reach into both wings of the Democratic Party as well. Um, Obviously, how do you think that will help Joe Biden tonight, particularly in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, where many Bernie Sanders supporters were seen to either not turn out or indeed vote for Trump in 2016. 
Well, yeah, no, and it's very interesting how the Bernie Sanders voters may have voted for Trump uh, back in 2016. Much then depends on them how they feel the situation has changed. And I think the one thing that Joe Biden has done really well thus far in this campaign is, has, as has been mentioned, he's deliberately made a point of reaching across the aisle. And that's because they have got this one common focus on defeating Donald Trump. And the fact is not just to the left of the party, the fact that uh, Joe Biden's managed to reach, reach to the right of the party, which is generally sort of where he would sit, but even beyond that and actually reach into uh, some Republican groups um, uh, that have uh, campaigned such as the Lincoln Project have actually campaigned for Joe Biden because they see him as a better choice of president than Donald Trump. So really, the personality politics here are completely in play. Okay, well, there is a lot we can certainly discuss with Biden. And we'll have to move on for now. But again, we'll be bringing back our analysts on very shortly indeed. So thank you very much for that. Um, Of course, a lot of states are in play in this election. And of course, one of the things for, of course, Joe Biden to win is if he's not going to be winning in the Rust Belt, and he doesn't take the state's those two bellwether states. Perhaps Joe Biden could take some other states tonight off of Donald Trump. Well, let's talk about a few of them now. So let's bring in firstly um, Scott Montague quickly. Um, Scott is not with us at the moment. That is fine. So let us go back to Lily McKell. Hello. Hello. So Iowa. Um, this is yeah. quite an uh, interesting statement. Obviously, it's one that Trump, only six electoral college votes, and it's one that Trump took in 2016. It has gone Democrat in the past. It's a very rural agricultural state. So on the face of it, it is a state that you'd imagine would go Republican. What, what do you make of Iowa's chances of going um, to the Democrats tonight? Um, well, polls say that it's going to be Republican again um, because it is obviously a... It is a white, majority white state, has 90, over 90% of the population is white. It's also very rural and working class. But um, one of the major issues, obviously, which is important for them is the economy. And they've been hit pretty hard um, when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to the uh, tariffs that Trump introduced. So I feel like that's one point of criticism, but it's more likely to go towards him because Joe Biden didn't really do well there in the Iowa caucuses. So... I doubt he's really liked as much there. Well, that that is a very interesting one because, as you said, Joe Biden, I think came, um, I think it was fourth in the Iowa caucuses. So, again, do you think that there's a sort of a hangover from that that could work against him tonight, potentially in favor of Trump? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, that definitely shows how the state feels about Biden, but. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. I think it's uh, going to be Republican, yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot for us um, to discuss there. Thank you very much, Lily, for talking to us about Iowa there. Um, let's talk about another state now, Arizona. Now, Arizona is, a, again, a very typical um, Republican state. It's something that has voted Republican for a very long time. But we saw in 2018, with a Democrat victory in the Senate for Christian Cinema. this is a state that has become a lot closer in recent years. And to talk us through that now, we have Garke Lung. Good evening. Uh, hello, good evening. How are you doing? Great to have you on. So talk, talk, talk quickly about Arizona, because 
this is a state that is very uncertain at the moment. A state that, again, you'd imagine to be typically Republican, but is being included within those key Democrat targets. Joe Biden has a 73% chance to win. And it's a state that Trump only won by 3% in 2016. So how do you see Arizona going tonight? Yeah, good. So the polls are predicting uh, a very close race in Arizona, uh, about two percentage points uh, in terms of the Biden lead so far. But some polls are predicting that it could be a toss up. So it could very much could go either way. Uh, As you were saying, it's the kind of state the Democrats are looking to target. Uh, Arizona's worth 11 electoral college votes. So, you know, every vote really counts. Um, But um, Biden possibly has a bit of an uphill struggle because um, Arizona is full of kind of older middle class uh, white voters who tend to vote Republican. They tend to be quite sort of socially conservative. Um, so uh, Biden might have a, a, a bit of a, a few difficulties in that sense because uh, the demographics don't favor him uh, in that way. Um, you might want to think that uh, he could target um, the Latino population in Arizona. Arizona has a very sizable uh, Latino, Hispanic um, uh, voting contingent, uh, but they seem to be quite politically alienated. Um, so it's not clear that uh, Biden uh, has the kind of uh, leverage with those voters to be able to flip the state. No, and you make an interesting point there on Latino voters, actually, because Latino voters are being described as very much the sleeping giant within US politics at the moment. Um Many people believe that if a state like Arizona goes because of these Latino voters, then potentially it's a state that could flip to the Democrats for a very long time. Is that something you would agree with? Yes, I think that's the long term trend that we're seeing. Uh, the, the Latino vote is, um, as you, as you uh, rightly point out, the kind of sleeping giant of the U.S. voting population as a whole. So if you look at the, the, the Southwest in general, so Texas, New Mexico, uh, Arizona, uh, those states have a very sizable Latino population. And um, yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many of them are politically disaffected. And it would be interesting to see whether somebody can really tap into that um, Hispanic-Latino vote, um, particularly from a Democratic point of view, and try to flip those states. Well, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see how Arizona goes tonight. Garke, it's been fantastic to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, of course, as we said, there's a lot of other states that Democrats are targeting tonight outside their traditional few. We think of potentially North Carolina as well. Georgia is another state as well. Let's talk bringing Adam again to kind of talk about those states. Because obviously outside the Rust Belt, which was which Trump obviously took in 2016, a lot of resources have been pulled into these states and the obvious bellwethers in Ohio and Florida tonight. How significant do you think the likes of Arizona, Iowa, Georgia, North Carolina will be to deciding this election tonight? I think they could be absolutely critical. Like in, we've seen that um, some of the other states are very much in play, and I think they are the de- the Democrats and the Republicans. I think both sides are recognizing that each state could be the one that brings the decision to it, particularly if there is any form of legal challenge or any form of issue that could come about. They they are not counting their chickens till they've come home to roost. No, absolutely, and I guess that is a key point to make at the moment that of course so much of America is in play in this election. Um, If I could bring in quickly my other analysts just to really sum up the presidential race, so bringing back Will and Neil as well. Of course a lot of states that we're going to be watching in this presidential race tonight, a lot of big debates as well. So we're going to go around really for kind of our last thoughts, our last reflections 
on the presidential race tonight. So let's start off with you, Neil. Um, well, in in my opinion, I think when we're talking about specific states, it all comes down to Florida at the end of the day. I, I, I can't remember exactly who said this, but earlier before, yeah, if, if Biden wins Florida, we will all have an early night. Because in, in the sort of projected scenarios for a Trump victory, he needs Florida for any chance of um, winning by any margin whatsoever. He needs Florida. And so if uh, Biden wins Florida, that's game over. And uh, we can all say goodnight. Uh, but other than that, let's say he doesn't. Biden still has many chances outside of needing to win Florida. So Florida is really only important for Trump. It is important for Biden if he wants an easy victory. And uh, yeah, but then again, like I said before, it doesn't necessarily matter which states start reporting first, what results we start seeing first. It's all about the bail-in ballots and have they been counted? Will they be allowed to be counted? And um, assuming that they all are, most likely, you know, we, we like to say that the more people who vote, the the more likely it is that the Democrats tend to win when there's higher turnout. And so it's all contingent on these mail-in ballots. And uh, yeah, that, that's going to be my summary. It's just about the mail-in ballots. Maybe. OK, the point of the mail-in ballots, that's something we will touch on very shortly. Neil, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me on. So, Adam, let me come to you now next. Um, if I can just quickly ask you about um, the mail-in ballots, because that's been the real controversy. Donald Trump has been quite ha avidly saying throughout this election that he has significant concerns about potentially fraudulent mail-in ballots. It's something in certain states in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin who accept ballots quite late as well, and particularly in a swing state like Neil pointed out in um, Florida as, as well. How do you much of an impact do you think that will have on the election result? Do you think we could have this case where because of mail-in ballots, this election result is hauled up in the courts and we won't know potentially long after this week. Yeah, I genuinely think that unless Biden, say, comes out with a massive whopping there will be some form of legal challenge. Uh, on the topic of mail-in ballots, there are already legal matters ongoing. So I've seen that uh, District Judge um, Emmett Sullivan from the uh, District of Columbia has actually ruled that uh, the US Postal Service must have federal inspectors to make absolutely certain that all their, that their premises and their vans are swept to ensure there are no last-minute ballots left behind. So we're seeing that not only Republicans will be raising issues around uh, the mail-in ballots, but Democrats as well, um, particularly as the mail-in ballots uh, they themselves might actually favour Republican voters. I've said this before, the fact that uh, the Repub some of the Republicans may be more reliant on mail-in ballots, uh, ballots if they are from the traditional older generation that rely on them, whereas we've seen a lot of Democrats, they've been encouraged to take their mail-in ballot and actually go and queue up and for hours if needs be to vote in person. So this could be an absolute firestorm in the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, if this election isn't finished tonight, it'll certainly be very interesting to see how it develops over next week. Adam, you will be back, I believe, on tomorrow morning's show. Thank yeah. you very much for um, joining us this evening. Have a good night. No, you too. And Will, if I can come to you very quickly on that, just on that point as well of mail-in ballots and just the election itself, how significant do you think um, mail-in ballots will be? And how much in general do you think this will impact the election? Where are we watching? really on that front so i think it depends on what federal system you're looking at so what state you're looking at because some states like florida they've had their mail-in ballot to be counted already so we'll likely get a result for florida on a night 
but other states, or they won't allow the legislatures to count the mail-in ballots until the in-person ballots are done. And then after that, if you see Trump declaring an early result based on a sort of a red mirage of early vote of in-person voters who have voted Democrat uh, Republican, then you might see like two thousand Florida in twenty or thirty states because mail-in voting is widely seen to be as more of a people who mail-in vote are widely seen to be as voting more Democrat. Okay, well, again. We will really, there's a lot really to talk about on that race. Will, we'll see you later tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you. So, um, as you can see there, there is really a lot to talk about in the presidential race. Of course, the polls will start closing 6 o'clock Eastern time in the United States, 11 p.m. here in the UK. We should be getting the first results. As has been said there, we're watching the swing states, Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. We'll be watching as well, all of the drama that unfolds with mail-in voting, just how much of an impact that could have. It's been quite a quite an interesting election. And thanks again. It is at the moment 8.03. Thanks very much to everyone who has been watching this stream so far. I really hope you've enjoyed, got some good insights from this tonight over what is, of course, one of the most unpredictable US elections, as we said earlier on. Um, Jacob Medenja, funnily enough, known as X1 here at Raw, um, he has just said, Thoroughly agree. I believe Biden has created a greater union within the party. And he's also said that the stream is going great. Thank you very much, Jacob. And of course, you may have seen Enoch's comment earlier that Florida isn't real, that we are just hallucinating. Sophie Woods saying that may explain some crazy stories there from Enoch. Of course, as our head of news here at Raw, we are, of course, dedicated to high quality stories. Enoch would not be responsible for such a thing. It is 8.04 now and it's time for us to move on to the House and to the Senate. Of course, it's not just the presidential race that will have an impact on how America is governed over the next four years, even though it may seem like that at times. It's also important to remember the impact as well of the House and the Senate as well, and just how much that will impact how America is governed. So we have another team of people coming in now to discuss what's going to happen over the next hour with the House and the Senate, how that Firstly, how we expect them to go tonight and how that will impact the power of whomever becomes the new president. So let's welcome in my first analyst for this hour. So Remy Trovo, good evening. Good evening. What are you doing? Yeah, not doing too bad, thank you. Uh, very, very excited for tonight. Once every four years, definitely a lot of excitement. How are you doing? I'm very good, very good. It's certainly it's the longest stream I've ever done. I'm I'm really enjoying it, I must say. I've got to ask you quickly. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the House and Senate in a bit, but obviously the presidential race, we've been um, obviously just touching upon that. How much do you think potentially reading, if we're not going to get any results into the presidential race, how much do you think we could get from reading into the House and the Senate races into how the presidential race may go, potentially? Good question. Uh, so on one hand, you could say that the uh, the American system is very much dominated by a system of checks and balances. The whole idea of having the Senate and the House as powerful as they are is to specifically make sure that the president doesn't get too powerful. So if you have people voting for a different party in the House and the Senate, in order to check the president, you might argue that's not a, that's not a very good check at all. On the other hand, however, I think it's a very good opportunity just to gauge public opinion and just to see if people trust the president enough for him to give to give him or her enough power to pass legislation through as as he or she uh, wishes so 
I'm very much of the opinion that it's a very good gauge of public opinion, certainly definitely a good supplement to the polls. No, of course. And particularly with this election as well, with the end of four years, the first term of Trump as well, whether there will be, depending if, of course, if Biden wins tonight, whether he takes the House and the Senate as well. That is, of course, something that could be very important to discuss. And so let's bring in Odysseus now to kind of talk us about. Good evening, Odysseus. Hello, Cam. How are you? I'm very good. I hope. Are you doing well yourself? Yeah, you know, hanging in there. It's been a hell of a year, man. Uh, you know, everything's been kind of crazy. And this election, I'm sure, will not disappoint. I, I don't think I can disagree with any of the sentiments that you have just said there. Um, Remy was just talking about the importance of checks and balances and the sort of impact there. And of course, if we've seen in past election years that the way the presidency race has gone, we've seen in the past that that has given a potential boost in the House and the Senate and enabled the president to kind of get the result that they want. Just really talk quickly about how much of an impact the House and the Senate has on presidential power. Where in the Constitution can both houses kind of make an impact on how much power who wins presidency tonight? Well, you know, I think what Remy was saying was absolutely right. Uh, we saw how important the Senate was in the impeachment hearings uh, Was it last uh, December. And we saw how the House, which was under Democratic control and still is, uh, voted to impeach uh, the president on two articles of impeachment. But then the Senate, which was and still is under Republican control, uh, did not convict uh, President Trump of those charges. So, and that control of the Senate really was detrimental to uh, what the Democrats wanted to do and that very interesting impeachment. And uh, speaking of impeachment, I, I'm really surprised at how little that has come up uh, in these elections. Usually impeachment is a huge deal. So definitely the Senate there made a huge deal and we can see how important uh, the Senate is. And also with uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, nominations, we had Brett Kavanaugh a couple of years ago who was confirmed by the Judiciary Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then we had more recently Amy Cohen Barrett, uh, who was confirmed uh, two weeks ago or last week, I think. And we see how that will be very important if there is, as reports mention, a potential Supreme Court battle over mail-in ballots. I mean, just like back in 2000 in Florida, there was a battle over uh, hanging uh, pieces of paper at the bottom of ballots. And I wouldn't be surprised if things get really out of control uh, that Donald Trump may take it to the Supreme Court who... Now, who he now controls. He now controls the Supreme Court, I'd say, with those two very key Supreme Court justices. Well, of course, it's important to say that when we talk about control of the Supreme Court, it's very much a sort of ideological perspective rather than Donald Trump himself controlling the Supreme Court. Of course, the recent confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett by the Senate takes it to a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And one thing, obviously, to infer from that is obviously the power of the Senate and its ability to obviously confirm Supreme Court nominees and a lot of the powers it has. And it really reflects just how important tonight's results could be on America and indeed the power of the president over the next few years. Let's bring in someone that you saw over the last hour that joins us now. Again, Imogen Harper joins us now as an analyst. Good evening, Imogen. Hello. It's great to have you back on. And I guess really to follow on from talking to Remy and Odysseus there, um, just how important, especially we know with partisanship now, and we've seen it particularly with the Amy Coney Barrett Supreme Court case, just how important is it for the president to have control of both houses of Congress? 
Um, definitely, um, especially over the Senate. So obviously we've seen with um, the both Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, the, the uh, vote basically being upon party lines and how integral even a few seats here and there are. And that has changed dramatically in the past 20 or 30 years, just how partisan the Senate is. Um, and that's going to be very, very crucial for what kind of uh, laws the um, the president president can enact, um, especially in terms of any more nominations or uh, not necessarily to the Supreme Court, but any other other nominations being approved by the Senate, uh, and that's definitely going to be crucial. Um, same with the House as well, because you know, of course, we've had the battle between the House and the Senate during the coronavirus pandemic, and how difficult that's been to pass any kind of um, legislation for people during this time. Um, and I do think that. That's going to be very integral as to who gets that if they are, you know, both Democrat, if one's Democrat or one's Republican. Um, that's really going to impact the extent of the power that the president has for sure. Well, of course. And I think you kind of just said it there that with both houses, particularly that the checks and balances that Remy mentioned earlier, it's vital for whoever in the system in American politics to have that ability to exercise power of control not just one branch government, but in the executive, but also the legislature as well. It's really interesting to see just how that develops. And I'm going to bring back um, one, and one of our analysts from the last hour to join us again, Will Kingswood. Hello, Will. Hi. Hi. Back again. And it is that point that we made there, that about the sort of the relationship between the executive, the legislature, and the checks and balances. And so I kind of need to bring the whole discussion that we've had on those checks and balances on the constitution and also on partisanship as well. Do you think the race for the House and the Senate within a presidential year is something that's become a lot more important, a lot more pronounced now, given that we have this partisanship that's erupted within American politics that has made things like Supreme Court nominations, like nominations to the executive, but also things like government shutdowns a lot more contentious now? Well, I think it's maybe not made it more contentious, but it's definitely made it more of a um, another way of giving your opinion on how the last four years have gone. So we saw that in 2012, Obama got re-elected, but the Senate and I think either the Senate and the House or just the Senate flipped Republican, meaning that Obama, even though he was in control of the presidency, couldn't really do anything because he had both houses of Congress blocking him and we could definitely see that this year as well even if Trump gets re-elected it's definitely conceivable the Senate could go Democrat and then you're almost going to get nothing done for the next four years because you can't really see a Democratic Congress working with Trump in any any reasonable sense. Well certainly we will go into discussing this a little bit more both the House and the Senate into just into a bit more depth in a bit but for now thank you to Will thank you to Imogen and thank you as well to Remy and Odysseus. We will see you guys once again very shortly. Now, of course, as we said, like we did with the last hour as well, there's a lot of key races that are important to both the House and the Senate. And in particular, we're going to be focusing on the key races in the Senate. Now, the Senate is currently, it's a 100-seat chamber. It's currently held 53 to 47 by the Republicans, though it is tonight, for a bit of context, a third of the Senate has gone up tonight, 35 seats. There are 34 seats up for election and then a special election as well in Georgia that we will come on to later. And so it leaves 35 seats up tonight. And many of those seats, some of them Republican strongholds that are potentially under threat tonight, some of them a lot more typical contentious, typical swing seats. And of course, 
how that goes tonight, whether the presidential race will have an impact on that seat, is something we will be following along. So let's really start off with one of those key races tonight. And um, in South Carolina, it's uh, been obviously, it's a state held by Lindsey Graham, uh, what the leader of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a longtime Republican senator, a state that normally reliably votes Republican, although tonight that may not be the case. Let's bring in to discuss South Carolina now, Josh Sim. Good evening, Josh. Good evening, Cam. Uh, Let's really start off with South Carolina. So, as I said, Lindsey Graham, one of the most senior Republicans, perceived to be under threat tonight. Firstly, just how how big is the threat to his seat at the moment? Uh, he does seem he does seem concerned more than usual. I think if you look at 2014, um, the lack of an organized, I think mean, the Democrats couldn't get together a strong opponent for him. And so I think this time around, there's a lot of support around Jamie Harrison. He raised $57 million in the third quarter of 2020, which is the largest quarterly total uh, by a U.S. Senate, can, Senate candidate ever, um, which says there is which suggests there is a lot of support on his side. Um and uh, yeah, I think you know, Graham. It, the chance of him winning the seat is about sixty nine percent. But it there is there is certainly uh, uh, there, there is certainly the possibility that he loses it tonight for sure. Well, that that would be, of course, quite staggering. Of course, Lindsey Graham took over from Strom Thurmond in two thousand two. Of course, Strom Thurmond, yeah. the very at the time pro segregationist Senate, and for his opponent, let's talk about Jamie Harrison quickly because. Many have perceived, obviously, not just his historic fundraising totals, but the way he has um, sort of galvanized all the African-American population in South Carolina. Of course, that was a population that very much was seen to turn um, Biden's primary campaign around when he won in South Carolina. Do you think it'll be a similar sort of impact in for Biden in the primary for Jamie Harrison tonight, that it's this electorate that perhaps hasn't always voted in South Carolina, it's been galvanized by Jamie Harrison and could throw into play a seat that we never thought would come into play. Yeah, I do see that chance. Obviously, you know, um, you, you, Tim Scott was obviously elected uh, last time around. And, um, you know, the Harrison, he, if you look at his, what he's calling for, he's calling for expanded coronavirus relief, which, as we know right now, is something that states, not just in South Carolina, but across the country are, are calling for. And um, I do feel like he has... There is something about him that that could certainly kind of galvanize and bring out the support um, and elect and and the election stuff. And you know, Gray, Graham's an interesting one because, as you and I know, he, he's sort of um, at times he's he's changed his policy stances quite quite easily. So um, it could be that people may have made one for changes uh, tonight. So we'll it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Absolutely, and of course, you do make the point there, Lindsey Graham. Of course, a very strong critic. Of Donald Trump throughout the election campaign in 2016. Donald Trump gets into office. It almost does seem like quite an interesting reversal. I'm going to keep you on quickly, Josh, because we're now going to talk about um, the state just north of South Carolina, indeed North Carolina. And this year, I'm going to ask him quickly to come in now and talk about that because it's a very different situation in North Carolina in the sense it's a one-term senator, though very similar situation to South Carolina as well, in that there's a Democrat candidate who's been able to sort of galvanize a population into voting for them there. What would you make the situation in the Senate race in North Carolina? Now, North Carolina is a very interesting Senate race this year. Um, it's between a uh, Republican incumbent, uh, Tom Tillis, and uh, the Democrat, Cal Cunningham. 
Uh, Cal Cunningham, uh, who recently had a bit of a sex scandal because of some rather lewd messages sent to someone who's not his wife about a month ago, uh, is cutting it very close. And most polls have him about six to uh, two, two to six percentage points uh, above uh, Tom Tillis. And interestingly, also, uh, Open Secrets is reporting that this uh, is the most ex- expensive Senate race so far in history, uh, with a lot of money coming in from secret donors and super PACs, uh, which will certainly be looked into into the future. But this is one of those decisive uh, Senate races that could decide and flip the future of the Senate. Absolutely. And with um, we obviously we're just talking about South Carolina there. Um, do you think the situation is slightly different in North Carolina? Do you think it's a state that historically could swing more to the Democrats? Or do you think there's very much a reliance upon both states going tonight for it to go um, go to Cal Cunningham? Of course, it's a 70 percent chance it's being given for Cal Cunningham to take that seat tonight? Uh, I don't think that the result in South Carolina will particularly influence uh, the result in North Carolina that much. Uh, After about a decade of gerrymandering since 2010 uh, in North Carolina, which influenced uh, the vote very much uh, in more recent elections, I think that uh, Cunningham's very close to making it this year. And, uh, you know, what shows that is that there's a growing uh, suburban population, which we've heard both Joe Biden and uh, and uh, Donald Trump on the campaign stump going at trying to get the suburban votes. And definitely North Carolina is not an exception with a growing population, a growing younger population. Uh, this is a very close race and it's quite important, but I think it'll be decided mostly within the bounds of uh, North Carolina, I'd say so. Okay, and just one last thing before I go back to Josh. Um, some people obviously said Pennsylvania is the state that's going to decide the presidential election. Do you think North Carolina is the state, the race there is going to be the one that decides the Senate? Well, I don't know if I'd uh, blow it up to that kind of proportion, but it certainly is one of the most important states uh, right now up for grabs. And it's uh, looking to be a very close race. And I think we'll be watching it with a lot of interest. No, definitely. If I can just come to Josh quickly one last time on um on south carolina quickly do you do you think that if north carolina stays republican tonight then that's it carolina um look it's it's certainly a blow because jamie harrison does feel like one of the strongest challenges we've seen to lindsey graham for a long time but um Look, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, four years is, is plenty of time for both good things to happen for Lindsey Graham and obviously bad things to happen for him as well. And as, as I said before, you know, he's, he's flip-flopped on policies and stuff and things like that. And people don't, I feel, I feel like people don't forget that. So this, while it will, it will feel like a blow, I think, if, if they don't get it tonight, I do feel like, you know, it, it might be, it might be a stepping stone towards the next election. You know, it, it, things like this could, it, yeah, like I said, it could, it could take a few, few years, but there's, it's certainly not a, a decisive end to the Democrats' chances of winning the state. And just one last thing, really following on from that quickly. I, same question I asked RK really in Arizona earlier. If a state like South Carolina votes for a Democrat senator tonight, then do you think there's a chance that the Democrats become a lot more established now, again in South Carolina? Of course, they have. It was a state previously held by the Democrats before the civil rights movement. 
and before a big partisan shift there. Do you think it could go back to say that the Republicans will very much be the underdogs again? Uh, it's a difficult one, that, because um, obviously in the pres- going to the other elections, obviously the pres- presidential election, South Carolina is very much a red state. And uh, if you look at the House elections as well, there's, there's only one sort of uh, district that's sort of contested at the moment, and that is a Democrat one that could swing back to red. So it's um, it, it's a hard one to say. Obviously, it I think it boils down to what Jamie Harrison can do, um, because obviously Tim Scott is a Republican there at the moment. So I think it's a, it's a tough one to say. I don't feel like South Carolina will immediately uh, become a state where the Democrats are strong in. Um, it might be it could be a marginal seat if Jamie Harrison was to win it tonight. It could be a marginal seat for the next election and. Um, I'm sure the Republicans will be will be pushing to win it back uh, if they do lose it tonight. Well, that is something, of course, we'll be following. Just how important both those races are tonight, and indeed long term as well. Josh, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. So that is Josh Lessim talking about um, South Carolina. Odysseus is still joining us. Let's um, bring in Imogen again to kind of just really reflect on really the importance of North and South Carolina there. Do, do you think, in terms of both of these races, that if North or South Carolina goes to the Democrats tonight, then that's it, not just for the Senate in this election going Democrat, but potentially a sort of long-term shift in these Sunbelt states towards the Democrats? Um, I'm not too sure if we're going to see like a full-on uh, consistent change to completely being Democrat, because obviously it's it's still very close. And it's still uh, not a hundred percent certain, you know, if if a Democrat will take um, either North Carolina or South Carolina. Carolina. So I'm not sure it's going to see a long term um, switch to Democrat. I still think they're going they're, go, they're going to be quite rocky and going to be very dependent on the actual candidates uh, and how they are campaigning, and more so like election by election. I would say. No, of course. And if I can also now bring back um, Remy as well. Um, if I can just quickly talk to you there about that point on those states in particular in the Sun Belt. Um, the Sun Belt is a region that has, we've seen particularly going towards Democrats. There's been a lot of attention in these states that we really haven't seen in past elections. In terms of maybe putting this onto the wider presidential race, do you think if these states go to... Um, go in the Senate tonight, that that's an encouraging sign for Joe Biden, not just in states like North Carolina, South Carolina, but in states like Georgia and potentially even Florida as well. Well, it's it's certainly encouraging uh, for Biden that he's seeing these kinds of shifts, perhaps in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, which is perhaps a very symbolic uh, state, one you might perhaps associate more with the, with the Republicans. But that being said, however, I would very much agree with the point that just because we're starting to see these shifts, it's certainly not a done deal. It, these states haven't been permanently convinced at all. So I would certainly say it's a good start. And I think the Democrats will be very heartened to see it. But I think now it's very important for them to consolidate that trust with the electorates and for the elector say to the electorates, you will be able to lend us your vote again in future and we'll be able to do a good job for you. So I think all in all, it's a very encouraging start for the Democrats, but they have a lot of work to do before they they can consolidate those gains. Okay, well, we'll be coming on to discuss another Sunbelt state that has two elections in later. But just really talking about um, the Democrats quickly, talk about Democrat gains. Of course, in the 2018 midterm elections, it was very much an election dominated by Democrat 
gains in the House. Of course, the Democrats took the House 235 seats to 200. And it's predicted by many that it will be a foregone conclusion that the House um, will be remaining um, Democrat tonight. So let's quickly talk about the House before we move on to some other states. So, Imogen, I can start off with you tonight. Um, Percy, what do you think? Do Do you agree that the House is expected to stay Democrat? And how do you think that will impact whomever becomes president? Um, I definitely think that the House is going to be staying Democrat, if anything, stronger Democrat, you know, with um, with all, all the seats up, up for re-election, re- Democrats have got such a stronghold. And yes, it probably will affect um, the presidency coming in. So if it's Biden, you know, Biden and Pelosi working very uh, strongly together, that's obviously going to get, uh, be able to get through a lot of um, le- legislation, hopefully. But I do definitely think that the House is pretty much insured Democrat. Um, and I think so if, if Trump did win um, and then there would still be, again, a lot of clashes between him and Pelosi going forward and just how um, difficult that is, that that, that is going to be for um with, with with coronavirus and the more uh, different um, le- le- legislation that we will need to get put through for, in terms of coronavirus, so I think that it's definitely going to be a bit of a difficult one, depending on which president the House will be working with. But definitely going to be Democrat, I would say. Okay, um, Remy, if I can come to you now, let's let's kind of take it on two points. Three. So, firstly, looking at the House itself, if the Democrats gain seats tonight or keep similar to where they were in 2018, what what do you think that will do for Nancy Pelosi, especially if it's a Biden victory tonight? Or do you think that with regard to that, if, if seats are lost by the Democrats tonight, then that could mean the end of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, potentially? Well, there's there's no denying that the, as far as the House is concerned, the Democrats are in a very, very strong position. Multiple polls are putting probabilities at almost 98 percent that the Democrats will retain control of the House and that there is even a chance that, they, that they'll gain seats in the House. Um, so in the scenario that they do gain seats, I think it will definitely strengthen uh, Nancy Pelosi's position. I think it will just justify that she seems to be doing a good job in leading the Democrats and that it's been justified through through electoral gains. And, and as you've said, if Biden becomes president, on top of that, the two are known to work uh, very, very closely together. And now, like you said, I think if, the, on the other hand, the Democrats lose seats, it will do Pelosi a lot of damage because all the polls are showing very, very, very strongly that the Democrats are set to control the House. So I think it will be a major blow to, to her credibility and her reputation if uh, if the Democrats do lose seats. So yes, uh, there's a lot riding on this for Pelosi. No, definitely. And of course, it's not just the presidential candidates as well, obviously, but it is those in the House. Adis, if I can come to you quickly. Of course, one of the powers of the House is its financial abilities. And we saw that with government shutdowns um, in the last couple of years and really the arguments that are going on between Trump and then Pelosi as well over that. Now, obviously take the presidential race out of this for two seconds and maybe think of the Republicans. But if it's a Trump presidency tonight and a situation where, for example, Pelosi, we expect will take the House, maybe a different speaker. How how do you do you think that there will be some sort of reconciliation between Trump and Pelosi? Or do you think it needs a Republican speaker to do that? 
Well, Cam, if uh, the House does end up in the hands of the Republicans, which, uh, as was discussed earlier, is highly unlikely, as the Economist reports, there's about a 99% chance of uh, the Democrats keeping the House in this election. But let's say in this hypothetical that the Republicans somehow manage to take the House, they will need to elect a new speaker, I believe. Um, And then again, I think Trump will have... In that case, if Trump does keep the White House, uh, he'll have a lot more control over over Congress, even if the Democrats do end up taking the Senate. Uh, and I think that in this scenario, there will need to be a change in congressional leadership if, if Trump uh, stays on as president and if there is a significant shift uh, in Congress, because otherwise there is really no tenable a solution to work forward. I think Trump has had about three uh, full government shutdowns so far. Uh, we've seen that whole debate over finances and and uh, the stimulus checks uh, earlier this year and, um, and healthcare, of course, there's currently not only a legislative battle going on, but also a judicial battle over uh, Obamacare. And so we see a lot of different things at play here. And I believe that if uh, Donald Trump does end up taking the White House again, uh, the legislative situation in America is going to move, I think, from already the bad situation that it's in to a much, much worse one, especially depending on the dynamics that will come out of uh, the results in, uh, in the House and in the Senate. Okay. And one last thing very quickly from all of the panelists before we move on to some other Senate races. Um, we haven't mentioned yet, of course, um, the likes of AOC, the squads um, within the Democrat Party and the people on the progressive left of the Democrat Party that have become increasingly influential within the House. So I can just get your opinions quickly. Um, do you think that as a result of the House tonight, whether Democrats end up extending whatever margins they have in the House or if they end up losing seats, potentially losing the House in general, how powerful do you, what result do you think will be most important for this group potentially increasing their power within the party? Do you think whatever the result, the progressive left within the Democrats, within Congress, are going to be a much more powerful force now? So, this is if I can start off with you again. Right. Well, I think that in this case, uh, probably the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party will take it in hand and say, "Okay, well, Biden didn't work. Now it's time to go sort of the uh, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders route and see if that will work, Uh, because they it was it was surprising to me how easily they accepted uh, Joe Biden as the presidential nominee, uh, considering the uh, the letdown and the disappointment that that side of the party felt. Uh, in 2016 uh, with Bernie Sanders. And uh, yeah, probably in this situation, the more progressive side of the Democratic Party will try and take control of the Democratic ship and steer it in what they would see as the right direction. Um, And the same, I think, is going to happen inevitably in the Republican Party now, because we see uh, there are rumblings of there are people who in the Republican Party who do want to be president uh, after Trump, and they are trying to calculate based on tonight's results and on the mail-in ballots that will come out through the week. They want to decide how they're going to play their political careers. So there's a lot at stake here on both how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party will move into their own independent political futures as forces in American politics. 
Okay, Remy, if I can kind of bring you on on the same point there quickly. Um, how do you think the how the results in the house tonight will affect the internal situation within both parties? Oh, well, I think regardless of uh, how the House results actually end up, there's no doubt that the progressive ring of the Democrats are going to become a more and more potent force. We've already seen how much of a profile that figures such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar and the squads have built up over the past few years. And I think they've kind of accepted Biden as, a, as, an, as an establishment candidate because they knew it would be an easier ride just to secure the candidate and not to give off the impression that you know, the party was internally divided, which Trump could play on. But I think now that Biden, if Biden does get into that position, especially with Kamala Harris as his vice president, and with her perhaps teeing up to be uh, president in the future, if Biden is successful, of course, I think the profile of these figures is definitely going to, to increase and they're definitely going to play a more important role in the party. So whatever the results of the House elections, very much going to have a big impact on the on the progressive wing of the party, that's for sure. Okay, and Imogen, just finally coming to you there. Um, yeah, definitely. Sorry, I was going to say, do you think there's a particular result in the House tonight that benefits any element of both parties? Um, so I d d definitely agreeing that uh, the squad, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the progressive wing are definitely on the rise. I mean, you see with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez winning her primary by a huge margin, and that she's really strengthening her role in her um, seat in the House. Um, so I, d I definitely do think we are seeing a Democrat, um, uh, the, the progressive wing of the Democrat definitely growing and definitely becoming a lot more prominent in the party, even though they didn't have the uh, didn't have Bernie Sanders as their um, as their as their nominee. Um, but I do think that that's definitely going to become a lot more prominent in the next few years uh, with these growing ideas. You know, the, the Green New Deal with climate change, um, they are going to become more prominent, and I do think that. Uh, the, the progressive and the Democrats are going to lead that. And I do think that the country is slowly coming around to the idea of do, of having um, a more progressive side of the party. Okay, well, certainly, again, it'll be interesting to see just how that impacts the internal nature of both parties. Well, Imogen, Odysseus and Remy, we'll be coming back to you guys later on. But I want to now talk about when we're talking about, obviously, the internal um disputes within both parties and it's not just in the house but it's also within the senate as well and one of the most prominent uh, moderate republican senators tonight is under threat in her seat in may so let's bring in noah keat now to talk about that so good evening once again to you noah good evening brilliant to be back i've just flown over from ohio to maine if only as, <laughs> so we only had a good background behind me of maine nice mountains or whatever yeah. I, I have to say new new england is a very nice region I think you've yeah. got the Great Lakes, and I think Niagara Falls is up there as well. So must Very, have had I think I think rules by just quite stretched to the, the flights, but maybe next time we'll see what happens <laughs> in twenty twenty four. Yeah, if John and Lucy do have uh, the ability in the budget to grant us flights, I would I would take that. But anyway, let's focus that, yeah. on let's focus on Maine because, as you said, Susan Collins. We talk about the internal disputes within the party, and of course within the Republicans, there's been this real conflict between many of those who are seen to be quite avid Donald Trump supporters and those with on the more moderate wing of the party. And Susan Collins, especially since the death of John McCain, has been very much at the forefront of that. Just talk to us about her chances in Maine at the moment. 
Yeah, as you say, Susan Collins, a really fascinating Republican, definitely one of the most moderate indeed. Um, I saw when researching her that she said she'd refused to vote for Donald Trump in 2016 because she just didn't see him as a Republican fit to be president. Um, she also refused to repeal um, Trump's reforms to Obama's Affordable Care Act because she said there's no viable alternative to what he was proposing. She was also the only Republican in the Senate who refused to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So clearly willing to be independent-minded, which is brilliant, but I'm sure it would lead some Trump-like Republicans to probably pejoratively call her a rhino, a Republican in name only. Um, as for the challenge that she's facing in Maine, it is actually quite a severe one. As far as I'm aware, she's the only Republican senator in New England, but she's facing challenge from Sarah Gideon, who is the Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives, a Democrat challenger. And having looked at the 538 polls today, it was really a tight race. You've seen Gideon ahead of um, Susan Collins, perhaps by two or three points. But certainly since July this year, where Susan Collins was previously ahead, she has slipped behind. And that is quite remarkable given how much, um, by how much she won Maine in both 2008 and 2014. No, exactly. I believe it was about 24 points that she took the state by in 2014. Quite an yeah. astounding amount. Currently got a 41% chance to win tonight. Within the wider Republican Party, and I guess that's the real, real thing with Susan Collins, is if, the, if Susan Collins loses tonight, then certainly amongst the avowed moderates within the Republican Party, then it really only leaves Lisa Murkowski, senator in Alaska. So do you think if she loses tonight that it signals a move from the Republican Party away from the more its more moderate wing? Or do you think this is just a phase that there are more of those moderate Republicans waiting in the wings? It is a really, it'll be a really interesting question because in a logical year, and 2020 certainly hasn't been a logical year, Susan Collins should win. As you say, she won with over 60% of the vote in 2008, and in 2014, she won 68.5% of the votes. So these are really, really wide margins. So the fact that Sarah Gideon really has a real chance of taking Maine and representing it in the Senate is truly remarkable. And I think a lot of it will depend on what lessons the Republican Party learn from her defeat if Susan Collins um, is ousted by the challenger and they'll have to decide whether they want to go down the more Trumpian direction or whether they think that moderation is needed. But I think a lot of that will come down not necessarily to Susan Collins' defeat, but ultimately who wins the presidential election. If Trump is uh, able to be victorious and get a second term, I'm sure Trump supporters will see it as a vindication uh, that their policies are correct. And a rhino like Susan Collins, as they call her, was sort of out of date and not um, necessarily had the correct vision for the 21st century. But if Susan Collins loses part of a wider Republican loss, both in the House, if, if, if as the um, analysts were saying, the Democrats strengthen their hand within the House and they manage to take over the Senate, I think that's why you really will have the internal debate with Susan Collins saying, look, you know, I've won previously um, in congressional elections where the Republicans have lost, like in 2008. So clearly the, pro the problem wasn't me, but Donald Trump. And so I think we won't have heard the last from her, even if she does lose, not least given that she has been in the Senate since 1996. So very long-term serving senator. Absolutely. And just one last thing quickly, because of course, one of the peculiarities of the Electoral College is that in Maine, the votes are split with this winner of the state getting two votes on the Electoral College, but then the rest of the votes being split on congressional districts. Now, the first congressional district is typically a safe Democrat seat, but the second district has tended to swing in the past. What is the likelihood of that second district? It went Republican in 2016. 
do you think it will go Democrat tonight or will it stay Republican? Um, I think it really could. Having looked at the 538 polls, a main and second congressional district for the presidency, almost both candidates were at 50%, so it was really narrow. And actually really fascinating to see that Trump was able to get the second congressional district uh, in 2016, despite losing the first and losing uh, the polarity of votes in the state overall to Hillary Clinton. Of course, uh, Clinton only won the state as a whole by a narrow margin of 2.9%. And I think you'll see the effect of the second congressional district almost less in the presidential race, important though it is, but more within the House elections, because you've got um, Jared Golden, who is currently the Democrat um, House representative of the second congressional district, managed to win it back uh, in 2008 from the Republicans that had held it between 2014 and 2018. Now, he won it in 2018 by a very narrow margin, about 50%. Uh, but these margins for whether he'll you know, hold it again in 2020 are putting it about nine points ahead. So I think if he's doing that well in terms of the, as a House representative, I think it's likely that the second congressional district, despite it being very rural, despite it having the sort of people that you might expect to go for Donald Trump, I think they might rally behind uh, Joe Biden and ensure that he gets all four electoral college votes from Maine rather than just three like Hillary Clinton. Okay, well, that will definitely be very interesting to see. Noah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So as we said, obviously, it's not just Maine tonight, but also we talked earlier about the Sun Belt as well, some quite key races going on down in the South. So let's now bring in some people to talk about that. So firstly, if we can bring in to talk about um, Arizona quickly, Robert Allison. Hello, Rob. Hiya, good to be back. Yeah, great to have you back on the stream. So Arizona, so we said in 2018 that this was um, taken by Christian Cinema in one of the few Democrat wins that night, but certainly being seen to be something quite indicative of a much wider potential Democrat surge in the South. Now, Martha McSally, who actually, I believe, lost that election, but then took on a seat. She is a vacant seat in Arizona. She's now standing for re-election tonight. What are her chances looking like? Um, it's unlikely for Martha McSally at the moment, unfortunately for her. Um, it's interesting how quickly Arizona has shifted. 2016, they had two sitting Republican senators, a Republican governor, and they voted for Donald Trump. This year, it's looking like um, the governor will be the only sitting Republican. Uh, Mark Kelly, the challenging Democrat for Martha McSally, Mark Kelly's got a 78% chance of winning, according to 538. And then, of course, you've got Kirsten Sinema winning the other Senate seat. And it's likely that Joe Biden's chances in Arizona are favorable, and he could essentially lift Mark Kelly up into that Senate seat on his sort of wave of enthusiasm in that, in that state. As the demographics have changed, it's been very favorable to Democrats. Uh, the district around Phoenix, Maricopa County is the fastest growing district in the United States mainland. So that huge urban sprawl and the sort of the, um, the rising uh, minority population that it brings is really helping Democrats there. That's happening across the Sun Belt as well. No, and I guess just before we move on away from Arizona, I just want to ask you a question. We kind of asked about quite a few states tonight, but if Arizona votes for Mark Kelly to be senator tonight, do you think that means it will vote for Joe Biden in the presidential race? I think it's it's likely um, that the two races do go together. Mark Kelly statistically looked more likely to take um, Arizona statewide than Joe Biden, but I think there's a decent chance tonight that we could be looking at a blue Arizona for the time in a long time statewide on both the Senate level and the presidential level. Well, that will be certainly a very interesting prospect to watch there. Rob, thank you very much.
So as we now, of course, talk about Arizona, let's talk about another state now, Georgia. And it's not just one, but two elections in Georgia tonight. So to break both those down for us, um, Josh Sim, good evening again. Good evening, Cam. So both of the races in Georgia then, let's kind of, so let's, let's try and start, talk about two races. So firstly, let's start off um, with the race between um, David Perdue and um, John Ossoff. How is that race at the moment? Uh, it's very split, to be honest, because I'm looking at The Economist. They predict uh, Ossoff has a 59% chance of winning. But then if you look at 538, uh, Purdue has a 57% chance of winning. So it's very split at the moment. And um, obviously, both candidates, it's, it's been a very uh, hotly contested um, campaign. Obviously, they, these two people, uh, candidates have, have debated and it's come off bad tempered at times. In fact, I think David Perdue chose to skip the third debate to go to a rally with President Trump instead. Uh, so it's certainly been a hotly contested one. And um, as similar with Arizona, it is kind of tied to the presidential election as well. We know Georgia can is a state that can also go both ways in that. So um, it's, it's, it's a really close one to call here. And um, the fact that those two polls have have each have each candidate winning on either side it it just goes to emphasize that point of course and there's a second race as well this one obviously being a special election but taking place on slightly different rules where if no candidate gets 50 percent tonight that goes to runoff again currently it's a seat held currently by incumbent um republican senator kelly loffler but she's been challenged on the republican side by congressman doug collins but then also on the democrat side it seems to really again galvanize a lot of the population there into voting Democrat. I guess sort of as an aside from that, do you think that if it's a case that if both races will go for one party tonight, of course, obviously we have the runoff in in a few weeks' time with that second race, or do you think that both races are very independent and that however one party does in one will not affect the other? Well, it's interesting because the Economist, for the same one that predict, predicted John Ossoff to win by fifty nine percent, have also got the have also got the sort of Democrats leading that one. So I think they are sort of tied. Um, I think those two elections. I think obviously, uh, Kelly Loeffler is a very interesting candidate. Obviously, very very pro Trump. Um, and um, yeah, I, I do think they are sort of tied um, to each other. And I'm sure you know people will be looking at at the at the the race tonight and sort of seeing you know either it will be a response i guess the special election will it be a response is to can we change what what happened tonight or can it be something that you know we want to reinforce so it's certainly an interesting one yeah no definitely and just one last thing same question that i asked rob um if arizona go sorry if georgia opts to go for democrats tonight away from the republicans do you think that will be reflected in the presidential race as well yeah, I, I do because um, as as we, as I as I look at the polls, you know, the Democrats slightly lead Georgia, but obviously Trump. Uh, it was a state that Trump won, uh, won in 2016, so it is a very close one, and you do feel like they are sort of aligned. I mean, the you know, if you look at John Ossoff's campaign, he's he's campaigned heavily on uh, coronavirus and how his his counterpart has not cared so much for uh, coronavirus. Um, so you do feel like those those issues are very aligned and you do feel like if vo- voters will probably align their stances uh, in both elections that happen tonight. Okay, brilliant. Josh, thanks very much for talking to us about Georgia. No worries, Cam. So that was Josh Sim there talking about Georgia. Um, one last race quickly to touch on in the Senate. And Texas, of course, a very solidly usually Republican state. Be quite interesting almost for Texas to be brought up and really would say a lot about the election. But 
Texas has potentially come up as quite a contentious Senate race. So let's bring in Rose Buxton now to talk about that race there. Good evening to you, Rose. Good evening. Are you as calm well, as I it's great to <laughs> Well, it's great to have you on this evening. Um, just very quickly on that race in Texas. So give talk to us a bit. Obviously, John Comrin's the current incumbent there. Um, but his seat is under threat, potentially. Just talk to us a little bit about how that race is going. Yeah, so John Cornyn has essentially been a cornerstone of GOP politics for years. He's a very, very reliable foot soldier in the Senate. And in general, he's perceived as being very dull. No one's particularly got any kind of strong opinions on him um, in comparison to his partner, Ted Cruz. Uh, his Democrat opponent is a veteran called MJ Hagar. She won the Purple Heart in Afghanistan. Um, I think most interestingly, she's a former Republican who didn't vote for Obama, um, except she's reinvented herself as a very kind of disruptive, progressive, and she's run a campaign straight out of the Justice Democrats, the organization that got AFD elected, straight out of their playbook. She's hit Cormoran very, very hard on things like dodgy donations and linked to PACs. She's hit him on healthcare, which is obviously a real touch point in this area. Um, I think right now the polls, nearly every single poll is, project, is projecting that Cornyn will take his seat fairly comfortably. But this is this has been referred to as the most dangerous challenge he's faced in his entire career. And with the exception of Beto O'Rourke, this is probably the strongest challenge ever launched to um, the GOP in Texas for, I'll say, a good 20 years. Of course, and Beto carried um, four points of ousting Ted Cruz in 2016. Just one last question. The same question I've asked um, Josh and I've asked Rob. Um, obviously, Texas is a state not many people would normally believe would be under threat for the Republicans. But if this seat was to go tonight, do you think that um, Texas as a state would go for Joe Biden? Oh, without question. I think I think a Democrat hasn't held a Senate office in Texas, I think, for about 30 years. So I think a Hagar win will be absolutely massive and it will it will reflect kind of real political alignment in the Senate. And I think it's it's a mistake to write them off too soon. I think Texas' early voting has already outpassed their entire twenty sixteen turnout and early voting always favours Democrats. So I think I think it'll be a mistake to write the Democrats out in Texas too soon. Well that is something that's gonna be very interesting to see how that goes tonight. Rose, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, as you can see there, a lot of contentious races in the Senate tonight. So, let's bring in my analyst again just to quickly talk about those Senate races there. So, it's great to welcome back Remy. It's great to welcome back um, Odysseus and Will and um, Imogen as well. So, if I could just go around all of you very quickly just to um, talk about those races quickly. So, who do you think is going to win in the Senate tonight? Because obviously it is very, very contentious. So... Who who do you think is going to win in the Senate? And do you think that whomever, maybe if the Senate does go in the direction of one party, do you think that will define who wins the presidential race? So if I can start off with you, Will, what do you think? Well, I think the Senate's going to be extremely close. I think it's definitely possible that the Senate could go 50-50 and then you've got another issue with if the Senate keeps going past the deciding vote goes to the vice president, meaning that the presidential race could become all the more important. I think even if the Senate stays Republican, I don't think that has much effect on the presidential race. It, the Senate could easily stay Republican while Biden could win the presidential race. Or 
while it's maybe a smaller possibility, maybe the Senate could go Democrat while Trump wins the presidency. Well, that, again, is going to be very interesting to see that. If I can now go on to Remy quickly. Um, what, what, what do you think? Because obviously the Senate, it's very interesting to see how that will go tonight. And a lot of people are saying it's the most, perhaps the most contentious part of this election. So do you think there is a correlation between if one party takes the Senate, or that they'll take the presidency? Or do you think it's particular maybe that if one party needs to win the Senate more to win the presidency? Good. That's a really good question, Cam. Um, personally, I would say the latter of those two scenarios um, is true. I think it's especially true that the Democrats will absolutely need to win control of the Senate to have a good chance uh, in the presidential race, not just in the short term as far as the presidential race itself is concerned, but just to have a fully functioning uh, Democrat administration. A, a win for the Democrats, as far as the Senate goes, would mean that Biden wouldn't wouldn't end up as a lame duck president with either with uh, the Senate constantly blocking him. We've seen the importance of the Senate in issues like uh, international treaties, ratification of them, and and most controversially of all with the Supreme Court uh, nomination. So. Yes, I do think that the Senate will be quite a good indication in some respects of how important the presidential race will be and which way that will go. But I certainly think it is very, very important for the Democrats to win the, the Senate if in the long term they're going to have a viable administration and, and secure their chances in the future. So definitely very important in my opinion. Okay, Imogen, if I can really come to you then with that second question, do you think that if it really may be important for one party to win the Senate more if that's going to help them win the presidential race. And quickly as well, speaking on perhaps some of the parties themselves, do you think that if the Republicans lose the Senate tonight or indeed the Democrats lose the Senate and fail to take it, do you think that will have an impact potentially on the leadership of, leaderships of both parties within the Senate? Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's definitely very crucial right now. And I do think that... Um, the Democrats do need to take the Senate because if they lose the Senate and they lose the presidency, that is going to, you know, re really, really tarnish their image. And you're going to see another four years of Trump being able to push through a lot of his own um, acts and um, nominations and everything. And that is going to be like a massive blow to the Democrats. They, they really do need to pull through um, and really push for the for the for the Senate. However. I, it kind of pays to be a bit pessimistic because of how 2016 went. I'm constantly looking at it being like, oh, I'm not sure I can really be very, um, you know, very confident either way because of how things just changed so last minute. So maybe we are going to see a Republican Senate and then potentially Biden um, as president. And that is definitely going to be a bit of a weird situation concerning acts he can pass through. Um, but it definitely will be um, very interesting to see how he'll be able to manipulate the Senate, um, that Biden that is, uh, and be able to work with the House to try and pass through a lot of acts. But it is definitely very crucial um, for the future to see if Democrats do win the Senate and, and what that means for the future of the Democratic Party standings in uh, US politics, for sure. No, definitely. If this is, if I can just come to you very quickly on another point, we talk about some of the races there and we've seen the changing demographics and the impact that's potentially had on states like Arizona, on Texas, on Georgia. Do you think that if those states do turn tonight and it is a Democrat Senate, that that will say a lot about perhaps the Republicans needing to change their approach, change their image? Or do you think this is very much sort of just a one election thing based off, um, based off just what's been happening over the last four years of Trump and very much a reaction to that? 
Well, I think if the Republicans fail this time around, they'll have no choice but to rethink their strategy, if indeed uh, they had a strategy. Because if you follow the Trump campaign and if you follow generally Republican campaigns nowadays, it seems as if uh, there is no concrete strategy at all uh, in what's being said, in what the plans are. It's just very broad strokes, very very sort of emotive language in their policy. I think it's definitely a rethink. And as I mentioned earlier, there are Republicans who will want to be president and who will want to distance themselves from the party of Trump now and who will want to run in 2024 and onwards. So I definitely think there's going to be a huge rethink uh, generally in American politics and especially in the Republican Party. And we'll have to wait and see uh, how the results will change that rethink uh, in American politics. No, absolutely. And we will be getting um, results for both houses, for both the House and the Senate throughout. Just one quick question. I'm going to go around to all my panellists quickly, just very quickly. Who do you think is going to win the House? Who do you think is going to win the Senate? So Odysseus, let's come to you first. I think the Democrats will keep the House and I hope the Democrats will take the Senate, although that is less likely than them keeping the House. Okay, Remy, same two questions to you. All right. So I'm fairly confident that the Democrats will retain control of the House. Um, and I think the Democrats will con will gain control of the Senate as well. But I'm not going to say that with as much confidence. OK, Imogen, same two uh, questions to you. I'm going to have to go with the Democrats definitely securing the House, but I'm I'm going to go with the Republicans taking the Senate, I think. OK, and finally, Will. I think the Democrats will have to take the House. I think the Republicans will keep the Senate, but with a much, uh, slightly less majority than they currently have at the moment. Well, certainly quite a very set of predictions there, especially in the Senate. And of course, depending on who, whoever is president, with all the checks and balances and partnership as well, perhaps these next four years are going to be just as chaotic, potentially, as the last four. Thank you very much to um, Odysseus, to Remy, to Imogen, and to Will for coming on there. Thank you very much indeed. And that is, that's the end of my time as well now. So thank you very much to everyone who's been watching this broadcast so far. We hope you've really enjoyed the evening and you've felt that you've got some sort of insights now into the presidential race and into the Senate and the House races in terms of what to look out for now. But it's time for me to hand over to my next presenter this evening. So good evening, Luke. Hi, Cam. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How, how are you? Not bad, not bad. Looking forward to talking about some of the local kind of elections that we've got going on in America at the moment. So no, it should be a really good hour. No, definitely. I'm really looking forward to listening outside the stream. But indeed, from my end, thanks very much for watching. Luke, I'm going to leave this all with you now. Awesome. As the clock strikes four o'clock in New York, it is my job to welcome you to the third hour of Raw 12.51 AM's US election coverage. Throughout the next hour, our expert panel will be discussing what is happening in America up and down the ballot with an initial focus on gubernatorial races in 11 states. At this point, I should introduce myself and our panel. My name is Luke James and I'm joined by Phoebe McDade, Robert Allison, Gar K. Luang and Edwin Chan. To begin our show, we wanted to discuss the most competitive gubernatorial race on offer, which means the election in Montana is the first on our agenda. The race, the only one rated as a toss-up by 5.38, pits Democrat Mike Cooney against the GOP's Greg Gianforte. 
In 2016, Steve Bullock secured 50.3% of the vote for the Democrats, consolidating his victory from four years earlier. Lyman Bishop is standing for the Libertarian Party. Robert, why is this race thought to be so close? And what messages have the candidates been driving home in the final days of the election? Ah, yeah. So thanks for having me, first of all. Um, and I think it's so close because you've got, on the Republican side, Gray Gianforte running, who's a massive Trump guy. Um, he's been all in for the tank for Trump, um, totally supports his agenda, has been very much on the America First messaging, um, is very much on the populist um, agenda of things. On the other side, you've got popular um, Democratic governor. No, sorry, not governor. Um, apologies. Uh, Senator Steve Bullock running. Um, and yeah, he's been hugely popular statewide, although Montana traditionally votes for Republicans in presidential elections. Bullock's had a great amount of success down the ballot in sort of split ticket voting. Republicans often peel off for him, say that they like the guy. Um, so you've got two really popular candidates from different wings of their respective parties um, running in quite odd moulds. Um, and I think that's really shaping up for an interesting race. Phoebe, what do you make of the election in Montana? Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I think, isn't it, isn't it he's not necessarily, the, so the Democrats aren't running Bullock, though I suppose it wasn't Bullock, is like term limited, isn't he? So they're running the lieutenant governor, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah, so oh, right. sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm just... So yeah, I mean, this is so like, like you're saying, like this lieutenant governor is basically seen as a successor to Steve Bullock after he's been term limited. So again, that's what you're saying is that this guy, the basically the successor to the guy who has been incredibly popular with both Democrats and Republicans, is running. And then obviously you've got on the Republican side another big character who's supported by Trump, and so therefore you can see why this race is as contentious as it is. Garke, what have you made of the race in Montana? Yeah, uh, as the other panelists have alluded, the race in Montana is particularly close and particularly controversial. Um, mm. Both the candidates have been sort of, you know, exchanging fire throughout the campaign. Uh, so, for example, uh, Cooney called Genforte a quote-unquote New Jersey millionaire and uh, John Forte has called Cooney a quote-unquote career politician. Um, interestingly, this is the second time that both candidates have tried to have, have sort of sought a run for the governorship. Uh, both of them previously attempted and, and previously failed. Uh, so both of them sort of know what's in stake, what's at stake for them. Um, but yeah, the political climate has changed a lot since they both uh, attempted their previous runs. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how they respond to uh, the coronavirus pandemic in particular uh, this time around. And the final person to bring on in terms of the Montana race is Edwin. Edwin, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Montana this week? Yeah, um, as everyone has said, uh, it's a very tight and interesting governor race. Um, but I think uh, given the partisan nature of the current election, I think it will pretty much down to the party line. So as in the case for um, states that will have Senate race as well, I think whoever wins the governor of Montana um, will also mean that, you know, 
if it if it turns blue for the governor, it will be um, it will turn blue for the presidential election. If it turns red, and the governor um, and, and the governor raised, then um, Trump is going to carry the state. So I think um, all the things that happened, um, you know, uh, it, within the state wouldn't be as important as it used to be. Um, but it's pretty much down to a very partisan line and partisan tactical voting. So if you're Republican, you will be voting for Republican candidate no matter what um, the popular Democrat that I had done before, um, vice versa for, for any Democrat voter who will be voting for Biden um, just because of the partisan nature of um, this race. The polling in, in Montana at the moment is typically within the margin of error with the most recent Montana State University poll, which was conducted between the 19th and 24th of October, having Cooney and Gianforte tied on 45%. Montana hasn't actually elected a Republican governor since Judy Martz in 2000. Edwin, will the state flip red in 2020? Um, I think it's... It's like the whole. It's like the whole whole election thing. It, it's a toss up, isn't it? So, I would say it will turn red, but that's just my guts. I don't have any concrete reason to to back me up. It's just a general feeling that um, there are quite a few people. Sort of just um, people have been talking about the shy Trump voters and also the Bradley syndrome basically meaning that um hidden GOP voters are going to turn 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 up and um and vote um in person today um i think that would be a important factor for um any elections that's happening today whether it's state um whether it's the it's the congress the presidential or governor so i think that will also apply to the montana governor race and i do think the republican will have a slight edge on that and Phoebe, if hypothetically a Republican kind of was to win the governorship in Montana, how do you think that might impact the voting in kind of the up ballot elections, whether that be for the Senate or the presidency? Well, I think, I mean, I think, I think it because definitely, as we've seen currently, we've Montana has a currently has, has in the, in the governorship they're represented by Democrats, but then in the House, obviously they're represented by Gianforte. And I think and I think it would be interesting to see if that would lead to Montana becoming more of a solidly Republican state. If it because obviously the more Republicans they have in more offices, it could suggest that it's leaning slightly towards yeah, leaning slightly towards Republicans sort of in general. <laughs> Garke, the race in Montana is so, so close at the moment. It's one of the only ones that 538 has, has as being a genuine contest right up until election day. Do you think split ticket voting in this state is going to be a big thing because the polling on the governorship and kind of the presidency somewhat apart? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's quite possible that split ticket voting will have an effect. Um, it, uh, it really depends on uh, how the demographics play out. So... Um, as I understand it, Montana is, um, you know, largely white, um, with a very kind of strong sort of social conservative bent to it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it might be the case that, um, actually split, so split ticket voting could, um, you know, pull the, um, 
you know, pull the voter population, uh, you know, apart and sort of going, making them go in different ways. Uh, if it turns out that there are some sort of sort of silent segments uh, of the voting population that do decide to come out one way or the other, right? So, so, so this split ticket voting could affect the way things turn out there. Split ticket voting in this election could be so, so important kind of across the country because Vermont is a really good example of this. Vermont is a state that Joe Biden is expected to carry quite comfortably. It is also predicted and kind of, again, quite comfortably to elect a Republican governor. Robert, how important do you think split ticket voting will be in this election? Yeah, I think in the down ballot races, it will be massively important, um, particularly in these states where you see huge likely margins on the national level for one candidate or the, or the other. Um, in Vermont in particular, you see the sort of trend in New England sometimes where they go solidly for Democrats on the um, presidential level and then sometimes flake off, vote for a Republican senator as they have done in Maine historically, or if they vote for a um, Republican governor like they do um, in Vermont, as you say. It's, I think split ticket voting will depend on the extent to which um, the national races get tied to the local races. I think um, going back to the one in, in Montana quickly, I think Jim Forte has done a, a really good job of trying to tie himself to Trump um, and sort of ride on Trump's coattails down ballot, whereas um, other races might be a bit more complicated that, than that, a bit more difficult. Um, obviously, Republicans will be running, depending on their, their standing within the party, on whether to tie themselves to Trump if it's in a red state or if they want to sort of run away, be a more moderate in um, more Republican, um, in more Democratic areas, sorry. Outside of Montana, there are three other races in terms of gubernatorial that are really thought to be quite competitive this year. In North Carolina, Roy Cooper, who is the Democratic incumbent, is expected to hold up a challenge from Dan Forrest. Stefan uh, Di Fiore is standing as the Libertarian candidate, while Al Pacino is representing the Constitution Party. North Carolina is one of the states that is expected to play a really important role in the presidential election. Should we expect to see any surprises in the gubernatorial race, Phoebe? Well, I mean, because I can remember the last time this race happened when Cooper was elected the first time. I remember it was incredibly contentious race and they literally had to go. And I think there was a recount and stuff last time. So, I mean, definitely, definitely this race will be quite close. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I was reading something that apparently the North Carolina, like the voting procedures, we might not get them until quite late as well. So, I mean, it will be interesting to see whether or not whether or not we'll know by the time North Carolina has counted all the votes, whether, whether we'll know who the president is yet. But yeah, I think it will. I think it definitely will be interesting. <laughs> and I definitely think it will probably be close again. Edwin, North Carolina, as we say, is going to be so key in the presidential election. Do you think that is going to be something that's going to be repeated in this gubernatorial race? Sorry, um, I think it is um, because um, North Carolina, it's a particularly interesting state because not only would there be um, a gov governor race, but also for one of the state senator. So um, in the case of North Carolina, I think um, split voting won't be the case, whereas um, 
so the running the the um the Republican candidate for for um the state senate race is obviously Lindsey Graham, a uh, very vocal supporter of Trump, um, and I think again, um, same case for any other um, state races, uh, but particularly important in North Carolina, um, partisan voting will be. Um, I think it will be the case. Um, I don't think split votes, split voting is going to happen in North Carolina, given that, um, especially the senator and um, to a certain extent the governor, as, the governor candidate as well, they have both aligned. They have both aligned themselves quite closely to President Trump. So, given the importance of North Carolina um, has in, in the presidential election, certainly um, it will be as close and as important. Um, uh, the government, the governor race will be as uh, the governor race will be as close and as important as um, the presidential election. Garke, one of the things that's been so so fascinating about this election is both kind of the early turnout and also the turnout on the day. What impact do you think the early voting is going to have on this kind of gubernatorial race? Yeah, good question. So I think the early voting uh, is likely going to. Uh, favor the Democrats uh, because uh, they, I think they've made it quite a strong push for early voting nationally and you might think that that's kind of filtered down to the gubernatorial race as well. Um, but it might, uh, you know, there might also be lots of very undecided voters who are just going to vote at the last minute uh, and that's possibly explaining uh, why we're seeing this huge sort of surge of late voting uh, happening right now. Uh, so um, I think all told, it, it, it makes, it, makes uh, it increases the potential for the race to be much closer than we might initially expect. According to 538, Missouri's gubernator gubernatorial race is currently leaning towards Mike Parson, who is the Republican incumbent. In fieldwork conducted in mid-October, Nicole Galloway, who is the Democrat, kind of in this race, tried Parson by seven points. In terms of the third party candidates, you've got Jerome Bauer, who is standing in Missouri for the Green Party, while Rick Combs is on the ballot for the Libertarian Party. Edwin, do you think the Democrats have a genuine shot in Missouri? No, it's a Midwest state after all, so I would be surprised if, if Missouri actually turned turned blue this time in the um, um, in the governor race. Um, I think. Um, the, it has it has been a Republican stronghold for um, many elections. Um, Obama managed to flip it, I think, in the presidential race in two thousand and eight. I'm not sure, but I don't think um, under the current atmosphere, um, a, a Democratic candidate um, can actually flip the state um, and, and can actually turn it blue. So. I would say Missouri is pre. Uh, is, it should be a safe red state for for the GOP. Robert, I can see you nodding in the background. I guess you agree that this is this is one that's going to stay with the grand old party. Yeah, I think I think this is one of those where um, the state and local um, races will closely align um, with the presidential one. I think Republicans just have such an entrenched position there now. Um, Although it was sort of a bellwether for, uh, I can't remember how many years, I think for nearly a century um, until um, 2008, 2012, it sort of did have that position where it could swing either way. 
but these days Republicans have pretty much wiped the floor um, up and down the ballot um, for so long. And I think any chance Democrats think they have is it's false hope. They'd be wasting too much money um, to put too much um, into advertising here. I think they'd be better off spending it in other states. Okay, is that something you agree with? Do you think Missouri is one of the states where the Democrats have to kind of focus their resources elsewhere? I think actually there is a good case to be made that uh, Democrats need to think uh, seriously about you know, how they approach the southern states uh, because the national elections um, tend to reward uh, candidates who can you know, muster a good proportion of the vote you know, across the entire country. Right. It, 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 you know, the, the whole point of the electoral college is not to favour one particular, you know, geographic section of the of the United States, right? And if we want to think about the Democrats' uh, long term cap uh, capability uh, of uh, of uh, nominating uh, future candidates who will go on to, who will go on to be successful, um, they need to think seriously about uh, putting in those kinds of grassroots actions uh, at. Uh, the state level, at the gubernatorial level, at the local level, so so that they can feed in uh, potential candidates and and it, you know, increase the potential pool of people whom on whom they can draw, um, uh, particularly in those southern states which are uh, which are often have very disaffected uh, you know blocks of voters, uh, such as the Latino vote in uh, the Texas and uh, Arizona, which I mentioned uh, earlier in the program. So I, I think um, the, the southern status, there needs to be a more, much more concrete southern strategy from the Democrats. And the last person I wanted to bring on this was Phoebe. Do you agree? Do you think Missouri is a state where the Democrats have to play the long game? They have to try and build their base over time. And then maybe in four or eight more years, they'll be looking at this state as being slightly more competitive for them. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I think definitely, like you were saying, in like, well, def first of all, I mean, obviously, there's that massive thing of can they turn Texas blue? Because there's a big, because obviously, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it was definitely more of a wide open, you know, back in, yeah, there was definitely more of a movement back then. So people are wondering, can we reclaim Texas and things like that? But I think the problem is, is that obviously, by doing that, the Democrats are comparing past results as opposed to, but can you actually beat Republicans? And so obviously, you know, it is it is good if they're doing better in southern states. But obviously that, like you said, it's a long term solution rather than a short term solution. And so, yeah, obviously things like, for example, obviously like the Senate campaign of Beto O'Rourke versus Ted Cruz, that was that was quite an it was an encouraging step forward. But obviously the Republicans have a very solid base in the South. And so, like I said, it's an improvement. But it's not enough yet to beat the beat the Republicans. Definitely. Before I hand over to our state analyst for Georgia, I wanted to kind of have you all on screen at the same time and ask you kind of a snap question about what's happened in, in Texas. So for years and years and years, people have talked about Texas as being a state that will eventually flip for the Democrats. My question to you, and we'll start off with Robert, is quite simply, is Joe Biden gonna carry the state in the presidential election? I think it's the fact that it's an open question that alone is a really revealing fact and sort of reflects the expanding map that Democrats are looking at going forward. The Sun Belt is really sort of shifting towards them. Um, this time around, I'm doubtful about Biden's chances, but the 
the fact that it will be a true toss-up more than likely in 2024 unless Republicans really rethink their strategy. Democrats don't really have to do a whole lot of work here um, to make Texas, obviously the, the second largest prize in the Electoral College, relatively safe in under a decade, perhaps. Edwin, what do you make of that? Do you think Texas could flip in the presidential election this year? Sorry, um, not a chance. So Biden is no LBJ. Um, last Democratic pres uh, president who carried Texas, and he was from Texas. Um, the Democrats are heavily reliant on the growth of city voters. So in places like Austin, Dallas, and Houston, um, those places we have seen a, a significant growth of um, newcomers. So people are moving in from from sort of more um, east coast and west coast states. Um, we can definitely see a trend of increasing in in. Uh, democratic voters, but I don't think the increase is big enough to actually recover um, from the GOP lead that they had built since the 70s. Okay, what about you? Do you think Texas is flipping this year? Uh, I think I have to concur with uh, Robert's analysis. Uh, so I think Texas is part of that long game with Southern strategy that the Democrats ought to be uh, pulling for. Um, yeah, yeah, as Robert mentioned, um, Texas could well be, if not a swing state, certainly, uh, if not an all, if not a, a majority blue state, certainly a swing state uh, within the next decade or so. And it really, it really depends on the Democrats uh, pulling together a, a, a broad coalition of you know urban voters, Hispanic voters, um, young voters. Uh, indigenous voters and so on and so forth, and really trying to reach out those segments of the, of the Texan population and the Southwest population in general that you know often get passed over by the campaigns. And lastly, to you, Phoebe, in the presidential election, is this going to be carried by Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Uh, I mean, I would still say right now, right now, it'll be Trump. I mean, I imagine that. Biden, they, they can, you can raise a lot of money in Texas, and I imagine that Texas is probably a really big focus for the Democratic Party. But I'm not sure whether the actual voting is there yet. And there's definitely funds, there's definitely people willing to support it, but I'm not 100% sure whether the, the votes will follow. I think that's a really interesting point. I think Texas is one of the states that is going to be a key focus throughout the night, kind of in both the local coverage and over in the United States too. Another state that is going to be of keen interest is Georgia, both in terms of the presidency and races for the House and Senate. So I'm going to bring Scott in now. Scott, you're our kind of main person for Georgia. What's your appraisal of the state at the moment? Yeah, so um, no gubernatorial uh, elections, obviously, in Georgia, but it's a really uh, interesting swing state. Um, key target state for the Democrats, won by Trump in 2016, um, only narrowly, mostly because of a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. And since then, Trump has alienated a lot of uh, black voters and older voters with his res uh, responses to the Black Lives Matter, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and the COVID, uh, his COVID response, respectively. And it's also a special case because it is the only uh, state at the moment which is uh, which has both of its Senate seats uh, are up for grabs in the in the same year as a presidential election, and um, 
all of these races are pretty much pretty flip of a coin. They're pretty 50-50 Democrat or Republican, although if anything, it's leaning Biden at the moment. So it's a really interesting state to look at. My question for you with regards to Georgia is kind of, obviously, there are the two Senate races going on, which could potentially have a runoff. Do you think in the second um, Senate race, there will be a runoff? And if so, why do you think that? Um, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's possible. So the 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 um, I, I, I don't think there will be. Uh, I think um, if you know, it's pretty, uh, as I say, it's pretty 50-50 which one's going to win, but uh, in both of those um, races. But, um, you know, both of the GOP candidates are very much um, running their, you know, running their campaigns on being Trumpists. Uh, even if, you know, before before Trump, they, they were very, you know, they'd probably have been classed as more moderate Republicans. Uh, the two of them. Uh, that's uh, that's David Perdue and uh, and Kelly Loeffler. Um, no, I, I don't think that there'd be a runoff. That's uh, fairly fairly rare, uh, and um, probably uh, there's probably enough um, support uh, for you know. There's probably enough uh, support for either side that um, it'll be you know it, it's probably clear-cut enough, uh, I, I think. With an eye on the presidential election in Georgia, this is a state that Joe Biden, the Democrats, have spent a lot of campaign money on. What are the key messages that the Democrats have been trying to get across in the peach state? Yeah, so they've um, they've both been campaigning quite a lot in Georgia over the last couple of weeks um, I you know uh, Biden was there last week in warm springs uh, uh, which is interestingly an area quite heavily associated with um, Franklin Roosevelt um, he's very I, I think that's a sort of a subliminal comparison he, he's been trying to make in a lot of places actually uh, over the last few weeks but um, from both sides actually it's been pre pretty well that the you know, the greatest hits. Biden is running as the candidate of uh, healing the country, of bringing people together, um, and Trump is running on uh, the economy. You know, uh, he, for example, in his he had a, held a rally there just yesterday, uh, where he uh, particularly focused on his agricultural policies and uh, military uh, military spending and withdrawing troops from uh, from from foreign wars, both uh, military and. Uh, farming are our major employers in Georgia. Uh, overall, I'd say uh, Trump has actually been more focused than Biden by, uh, on uh, things that tend to matter to a lot of uh, Georgians. Uh, Biden has been, you know, rather uh, sort of touting the same message is spouting the same message as he has in in other places. He tried to appeal to the Catholic vote, which uh, makes up about a tenth of um uh, catholics make up about a tenth of georgia's population and um i su suspect he is also relying largely on the uh african-american vote and um the uh, uh elderly populations vote um the former of which make up just under a third of georgia's population um you know because uh because of their uh, you know the disaffection from Trump that I talked about earlier. Uh, yeah, that's what they're running on.
since kind of 1972, Georgia is a state that tends to vote for the Republican candidate in presidential mm. elections. The last time that a Democrat carried the state was Bill Clinton. And that was yeah. kind of there were two factors that were in play there. Number one, you had Ross Perot, who took up a sizable amount of the vote in that year. The other factor was Bill Clinton is kind of from the South. And there was a fair amount of kind of popularity as a result of that in states in that area of the country. Another thing to consider with Georgia is that only kind of three times since 1972 has the state not voted the same way as the overall winning candidate. That was in 1980 when they backed the Democrat, mm. 2008 when they backed the Republican, and 2012 when they backed the Republican as well. The final question that I wanted to put to you um, was quite simple. How is Georgia going to vote, in your opinion, in 2020? Oh, um, I, I, it's it's a difficult one to call. It's almost too close to call. I would say it will probably go Biden in the um, go for Biden in the presidential uh, election, um, and I think Biden will probably win the the, the national election as well. Uh, but uh, but only just uh, it is uh, it does have that uh, as you say sort of twenty twenty four years of uh, Republican victories um, on its shoulders. It, it's, it's a difficult thing to, uh, to shed. Um, in terms of the Senate, it, it's, uh, I, I really don't uh, feel like I can call it. It's, uh, it's very close. I think um, David Perdue, the uh, Republican, uh, Republican senator and a businessman, does have uh, quite a, you know, carry quite a lot of respect. So I think there's a chance that he'll win his race uh, in terms of the Senate. Uh, the the other one between Kelly Loeffler and Ralph Warnock, I I really couldn't call it. But uh, yeah, I think I think there's a chance that uh, Georgia could go blue uh, in the presidential election. Before I let you go, before I kind of parted with the panel to bring you in, I asked them about Texas. Texas again is a southern state that, mm. like Georgia, people are talking about potentially flipping in the presidential election. What's your thoughts on that? Is this a state that you reckon Joe Biden will carry or one that will stay with President Donald Trump? No, I, I think it will uh, stay with President Trump. I think a lot of the talk over the last, um, certainly in the last probably decade, um, about Texas uh, turning blue at some point is um, warranted. Uh, but of course, uh, the, the question is of um, how uh, effectively or no, 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 how how many um, Democrat votes really count? Um, the incumbent, uh, the incumbent Republicans in Texas have done uh, a masterful job of suppressing the Democrat vote, um, uh, along with the the fact that um, the demographics that tend to vote for uh, Democrats, so the younger population and, and um, Hispanic populations, uh, which have both been growing significantly in the last uh, couple of decades, in Texas uh, tend to have lower voter turnouts than older white Republican voters. Um, so it, it, it is uh, possible that um, Texas will turn blue at some point, but it's not going to be this year. Um, it, it's, it, you know, they, they've done well at voter suppression. <laughs> Scott, thanks. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. If anything else catches your eye in any of the southern states or in particular Georgia, please do let us know and we'd love to bring you back on before the end of this evening broadcast. 
However, the final gubernatorial race of interest is between GOP, GOP incumbent Chris Sununu and Democratic challenger Dan Felt in the state of New Hampshire. Sununu is expected to hold on, having won the state in 2016 by just under 20,000 votes. Daryl Perry has stood as the Libertarian Party candidate in New Hampshire. 538 forecast Biden to carry New Hampshire. Will the state re-elect a Republican governor? And I'm going to bring Garke on now. So what are your thoughts on this, Garke? Yeah, I, I do think that the the incumbent does have a, a strong chance, uh, particularly with um, you know Trump's kind of enthusiastic voter base and the incumbent sort of uh, riding on, those, on the coattails of, of that, as we've seen in so many other of the gubernatorial races. But it is worth pointing out that the Democratic challenger, Dan Phelps, uh, is, uh, uh, has an endorsement from Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders did carry New Hampshire uh, with about, I think, 44% of the vote, if I correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, he, um, he collected uh, uh, a large percentage of the, uh, of the, uh, the delegates in the initial uh, Democratic race in New Hampshire. Uh, and New Hampshire in general is very uh, uh, strongly Sanderite in that sense. Uh, so yeah, it might be the case that Dan Phelps can tap into that sort of Sanderite strain uh, among New Hampshire voters uh, and try to clinch uh, the gubernatorial race away from uh, the Republican incumbent. Edwin, what have you made of the race in New Hampshire? Is Dan Phelps something can seriously challenge in this state? I think the Republicans will have a strong chance in the state. And in fact, we actually have some actual results coming in from New Hampshire. Um, so currently, 27 votes have been counted. Um, 26 go to Chris Sununu and one goes to um, Dan Felt. Obviously, that's just for fun. It's not anything indicative. But um, um, judging by the fact that um, it was a very close race between Trump and Clinton in the last election, um, Although the state did vote for Sanders, um, it does seem to me that um, at the governor level and both at the presidential level, there is um, trend shifting towards the Republicans. And I didn't, see, I couldn't see any sign of a blue wave going on in, in New Hampshire, um, despite Sanders' endorsement. Um, that's why I think the, the GOP candidate will still have a strong chance of um, retaining his position. The next person I wanted to bring in to discuss this was Phoebe. Phoebe, what are you making of the race over in New Hampshire? Um, well, I think it's definitely that that particular sort of corner of the United States, you know, that kind of like northeast corner is always a very interesting case because obviously, despite the fact that on a national level, they obviously go very much towards Democrats. And obviously, on state levels, they do tend to vote for things like Republicans and it's certainly going to be interesting in places like New Hampshire because well, I think with definitely with regards to things like economic policies and things like that, they're definitely, even though, because, because obviously in the, in that area, they tend to be socially liberal anyway, most of the Republican candidates in terms of economic issues, they actually prefer a lot of electing Republicans at state levels. So I guess it will be interesting to see. I think there is a possibility 
definitely of this of a split because obviously on a national level, Donald Trump is is a is a sort of conservative on a national level, whereas maybe they might vote for a Republican governor who is conservative for that particular region of the United States. And finally, over to you, Robert, do you think Dan Feltz, who is obviously the Democratic challenger in New Hampshire, do you think his campaign has enough steam to overturn the polling deficit that we've seen kind of over the last couple of weeks? Um, unfortunately for him, I don't think so. I think it's interesting how New Hampshire votes. It, it's got Chris Sununu, who's quite a solid incumbent for the Republican Party there. Um, they've got Jihan Shaheen in the Senate, who's overwhelmingly favoured to win um, there. And then the on the presidential level, they're sort of split in between the two. It's quite a close race favoured for Democrats. Um, but unfortunately for the governor, I think, as has been mentioned, um, you know, you've got a lot of these New England Republicans, very socially liberal, but also quite traditionally Republican in their economic messaging, which resonates with the sort of um, voter that you see in rural New England, um, outside the cities. There's this quite solid voter base that the Republicans often tap into that I think will carry Sununu, Sununu quite comfortably over the line. As a final point of discussion with regards to kind of the governor races across the United States, I wanted to ask you about the lack of third party influence this year. Of course, there are Green Party, Libertarian, Constitution Party candidates standing across most of the states that I've mentioned. Phoebe, why aren't they cutting through in 2020? Well, I think I think in many ways the thing is is, is that this hasn't if you compare it to 2016, it's actually been not a boring election year because obviously no election year is boring and we've had coronavirus and all this stuff. But when you consider how I mean, I think the, the difference between Joe Biden and Hillary is quite pointed because there isn't that same amount of drama and controversy that Joe Biden creates. And so therefore, obviously, Donald Trump is still a very controversial candidate it's not as kind of these are two very like awful people, but very awful in different ways. So I think definitely the race this year is a bit less divisive, I would say. Edwin, do you think kind of the polarisation between the Republicans and the Democrats on the presidential level is the reason why we're not seeing much third party representation in the polls this year? Yes, I would definitely absolutely agree with Phoebe. Um, I think it's not just in the gubernatorial races, but also across the broad, um, we can see that it is increasingly difficult to be a centrist this year. Um, one excellent example, it's in the main Senate race. Susan Collins, a very moderate centrist GOP, um, who actually spoken and voted against the nomination of Amy um, Gummy Barrett um, recently. Um, but even she is being now she's being forced out. And, and, and according to the polls, it's very likely that the Democrats is going to take that Senate seat. So I think that's a perfect example of how difficult it is to be a centrist in um, in the current under the current atmosphere. Um, it's the sense of you're either with us or you're against us. So, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to be a neutral, hard to, hard to be independent. Robert. So we've kind of heard so far that the Republicans and the Democrats are taking up all the space in American politics. It's been a long, long time since we saw anyone like Ross, um, kind of Ross Perot in 1992, make a real claim in the presidential election as a third party candidate. Is this something that we're going to see kind of for the, for the foreseeable future? Is this going to be a continuation of the two party politics in the United States? I, I think it's hard to make a prediction too far into the future on that. I think 
2016 was a uniquely bad cycle for the two main parties, um, where you saw, as Phoebe mentioned, two uniquely unpopular candidates, two um, really disaffected set of voters, split parties. In 2020, with obviously everything going on and the world being on fire, voters won quite a quiet campaign, as it has been. That suits voters. They want a sort of candidate they know that they can trust, and Joe Biden um, has been able to build that campaign around him being the safe pair of hands, um, which has really cut into any third-party support from last time. Um, and as for going forward, I think unless Joe Biden chooses his um, successor wisely, you could see a lot of um, liberals push out of the Democratic Party into the Green Party um, in 2024. But I think that's something that he has to be wary of. Republicans also could split if Trump's successor doesn't unite the party well enough. You could see a lot of splitting into the Libertarian Party there. So potentially a bright future for the um, more minor parties, but unlikely that they're going to make a huge breakthrough, I think. And Garke, I'll throw that final point over to you. Do you think 2022 or 2024, is that the year where we see more kind of shouting about the Libertarians or the Greens or the Constitution Party? Uh, well, uh, there's a very famous law in political science called Duverger's Law, which says that um, uh, electoral systems with uh, winner-take-all rules tend to vote favour two, two dominant parties. So as we've seen in um, most cases in the UK and most cases in the US, uh, you know, the, the rule has held up fairly, uh, fairly consistently well, where you have these you know, winner-take-all party, uh, uh, winner-take-all um, electoral systems, uh, first-past-the-post-electoral systems that tend to you know, favour these dominant parties, two dominant parties. Um, so it really, if, the, if these smaller parties like the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, really want to make a difference, they need to figure out how they can uh, pull the two major parties uh, towards their respective ends of the spectrum. And now moving over to the state of Colorado, where voters are considering a ballot measure which seeks to ban abortion in the state after 22 weeks of pregnancy. If Proposition 115 is approved and enacted, a person who performs an abortion after the 22nd week of pregnancy will be charged with a class one misdemeanor and handed a fine of up to $5,000. Only two polls have been conducted on Proposition 115 with both indicating leads for the no campaign, which is campaigning against the implementation of the proposition. Mm -hmm. Polling conducted by Daily Cos and Civics between the, uh, between the 11th and 14th of October has the yes campaign on 42 points and the no side leading on 51 points. Robert, how do you expect voters to respond to this proposition and how might this impact the Supreme Court? Um, I think it's likely that you see um, the vote coming out at a no. Colorado's been trending pretty democratic and pretty socially liberal over the past decade or so. Um, in 2016, it was solidly for um, Hillary Clinton, and this time around, it's not even really being considered a swing state. So I think down the ballot, that will be reflected in some more sort of socially liberal policies. Um, but I think if it's a, if it's a particularly tight-run thing um, and the election counting ballots does go up to the Supreme Court, Obviously, with the 6-3 majority now, that is likely to rule in favour of more conservative social policies. But personally, I think it's unlikely it goes that far. I think um, unless the Supreme Court produces some sort of more national um, degree um, of challenge to Roe v. Wade, I think 
Colorado is unlikely to um, slide backwards that way. Phoebe, do you agree? Do you think this is a proposition that is going to be voted down by the electorate in Colorado? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that Colorado, definitely, I would say it is more of a Democrat state. And obviously, the fact that this has sort of coincided quite closely with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett is that that's certainly interesting. And that would definitely, I would say, probably would motivate a lot of the voters to sort of vote against it. I think particularly that's what I'm saying is that one of the things that the confirmation of Coney Barrett did is it sort of it has sort of caused a lot of people to worry about these kind of social issues and definitely makes people wonder, are there, are there going to be more kind of bills like this being introduced? And so I would definitely say that that probably will galvanise a lot of more socially liberal voters into voting down measures like this, but it will also motivate more socially conservative voters and lawmakers into making bills like this but i would say in colorado's case i would say as a as a more liberal state they'll probably will vote it down edwin amy coney barrett's kind of placement on the court as a supreme court justice has been a major story throughout the weeks leading up into the election it's led to conversations about whether or not the democrats would pack the court under a joe biden and kamala harris presidency with um, propositions like this, is is this why kind of we're seeing the discussion about these social issues come to the fore? Is this kind of part of the culture war that's been taking place under Donald Trump's America? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it's a it's the start of a sort of cultural war, but um, given that Colorado has been quite socially liberal, um, bear in mind they they were one of the first states that actually legalized um, marijuana. Um, few years ago. So I was actually quite surprised that um, this was put in the ballot for, for um, this election. Um, whether or not it, 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 it's, um, it's a cultural war, I, I doubt that because um, the, the fact that it, it is a referendum, it is a referendum issue rather than um, being put as a, a being, being proposed as a bill in the state's legislature, um, shows that I think politicians, at least at the state level, are still pretty um, aware of um, of the possible conflicts that will arise from from these issues. And that's why they did want to give people the vote and people the choice to actually have a say on it rather than pushing it through um, uh, state legislation and stick with um, sort of more partisan line. So, um, I don't think it is um, a, a start of culture war, but certainly with um, a more solid um, traditionalist conservative majority in, in the Supreme Court, um, it is very likely that we will see um, more conservative dominated like state legislature. So we're looking at places like Alabama, Louisiana, um, who had um, their own abortion law um, strike down by the Supreme Court um, a few months ago, that was when RBG was still there. Um, so it will be interesting to see, and I think it's likely that these states, uh, with a heavily GOP-dominated state legislature, will definitely try to push through some um, sort of more controversial, um, sort of more conservative-leaning bills um, on the issues on abortion, um, marijuana, criminal justice system, 
Um, whether this is going to start a cultural war, um, it depends on how far they go. Um, certainly, if, if, if they're pushing for a direct challenge against Roe v. Wade, um, that will certainly um, stir up pretty bad trouble in, in those states. But um, yeah, it remains to be seen. And Garke, the final point on the Proposition 115 in Colorado for you, is this something that is going to pass or fall in this referendum vote? Sorry, I think I would concur with the assessments of the uh, other commentators. So uh, it's not entirely clear how this proposition came about, given the, the social liberal nature of Colorado. It might be that it was a response uh, by certain you know, socially conservative quarters uh, to not only the, the social liberal tradition in Colorado, in Colorado, but also the general polarizing nature of the elections uh, that we've seen, uh, the, the general political polarization that we've seen. Uh, over the past few years in the States. So I, I don't expect this particular uh, proposition to go through. Uh, the polls don't certainly don't track that way. Uh, so uh, yeah, if this one does go through, it will be a surprise. As we enter now into the final 10 minutes of this kind of three hour broadcast on Raw 12.51 AM, we have a question um, from Sean Bolton, advice for making it through election night. So we're going to start off with you, Edwin. What's, what's your kind of number one tip for making it through election night 2020? Um, find something else to watch. It's going to be a long night. So, you know, if you have a laptop and a tally or a second screen, perfect. Find a good film. Um, don't make a coffee too early. That's the mistake I made in 2016 because you have to, if you really want to watch the whole thing, you have to probably stay awake until six, maybe eight-ish for this year. It's going to take longer. So, you know, um, save the coffee for like three or four when you are desperate to go to bed. Um, but yeah, find something else to do, you know, whether it's reading, um, play games, uh, play some music, watch a film. Um, and if you if you can't really stay up for that long, you know, just go to bed and, and read the news in the morning. Robert, what is your advice for making it for election night? Um, well, for me, I've got a bottle of wine waiting <laughs> for me and once we're done here. So that's going to be my little um, treat to help me through. But um, I would say just be patient with it, honestly. Um, wait for things to come in um, and don't take the results too seriously at closing time because oftentimes, you know, especially this year, things will take ages and ages to trickle in um, and any races that are called too soon, the networks will get absolutely called out for so i think they will be very cautious just be patient with the results they'll come in as they need to um and don't get too concerned if things swing one way or the other and you don't like it phoebe what is your election night survival guide well i mean i mean to be fair for this particular election i would say it's like we went through 2016 so i doubt that this will be anywhere near as um strange and surreal as that so i think first of all just always keep that in the back of your mind that things you know if we if we made it through that you can make it through tonight and yeah there are just you know they know there's lots of people watching so they are going so news sources and whatever are just going to try and throw all kinds of information at you but yeah just wait to the final results before making any kind of snap decisions and 
finally, over to you, Garke. What is your number one top tip for kind of making it through this election 2020 kind of night-long extravaganza? Just a lot of sugar. So I, I would stack up on chocolate, uh, cake, uh, cookies, uh, any kind of sugar that I can get my hands on, uh, just so I can uh, muster the energy to get through the night. Um, but one thing I would say is that given the time difference and given the fact that uh, some states have extended their closing times, uh, it might take a real, a real long time for uh, several states to uh, to report their results. It might take ages for the final results to really filter through and be confirmed. So you might just want to you know, have an early night in for once uh, and uh, deal with it all tomorrow, I guess. That's certainly another way of looking at it. I think we've had some really solid advice there from our panel. And that brings us on nicely to kind of the final segment of the show. I'm going to go around to each of you now and ask you all the same question. Is there a state, whether that be in the presidential race or is there a certain race for the House or the Senate that has caught your attention and is going to be the one that you're watching over the next hours and potentially days, depending on how long the count take so we're going to start off with you robert which state are you watching kind of over the course of the next few hours um i think for me the crucial state to watch um will be pennsylvania i think pennsylvania will essentially swing it um either way for the election there's very little viable pathway um for trump without it and florida could also factor into that as well on the senate level i'm looking at north carolina and iowa as two pure toss-up races that will be pretty indicative of the more national picture. Um, and then house races, I think it's they're pretty predictable there. I think you'll only see um, marginal shifts for either party, but Democrats are likely to pick up a majority again. So it's whether they can pick off one or two more um, seats riding on Joe Biden's coattails. Over to you, Edwin. What are you watching out for over the next couple of hours? Um, it's interesting because we all know that Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio is going to be, be are going to be uh, very important. But what I look for is actually the results in Iowa because um, it will be one of the it should be one of the first days to be called, and um, it's it does have an indicative effect, uh, in, in, indicative um, it's a good indicative for indicate for um, the working class vote in in the rusted bell or the, the so-called blue wall um back in the obama days um in the last few days there have been concerns raised among the biden campaign um saying that if they lose too badly in iowa then it might be a bad sign um that might suggest that they might not be doing so well in Pennsylvania as well. So given that, especially given that it is coming in quite early, much earlier than the other key states, I think for the presidential for the presidential race, Iowa will be the one that I will um, keep an eye on. And for Senate, Georgia, just because um, it's quite rare that two Senate seats are getting re-elected at once. And um, it's also a swing state for presidential elections as well. So I would keep a close eye on the Senate race in Georgia as well. Over to you, Phoebe. What states and races are you looking out for over kind of tonight? Well, I think I'll probably be looking at places like, we said the Rust Belt, places like Michigan and Wisconsin and places like that, because that was definitely where a lot of people say that Hillary Clinton lost the election is when she was unable to pick up those votes. And so obviously it'll be interesting to see if Biden can correct the course on that. And then also possibly a place like Arizona, because Arizona has been 
gradually becoming more and more blue as time has gone by in things like Senate races and other things like that. And again, Arizona is the key to places like Texas and that. And so therefore, I would say that Arizona, in terms of like looking at the future and looking at trends for the Democrats, and then obviously in this election, it'll be interesting to see if Biden can regain places like Michigan. Yeah. And finally, over to you, Garke. We've heard all the states you'd expect, the likes of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Pennsylvania, again, twice, apparently, Florida. We've heard from lots of states. What are you looking out for over the next 24 hours? Yeah, I would concur with the other commentators who are closely watching the Rust Belt uh, to see if Biden can uh, reverse uh, the... Uh, the courts that uh, Hillary Clinton took there, or rather, sort of undo the damage that Hillary Clinton caused in those states. Uh, I mean, he, he did infamously tell uh, some of the voters of the Rust Belt to learn to code, which may have alienated them uh, in that sense. So it's not clear to what extent Biden has uh, has repaired the damage. Um, but I'll just put in uh, a shout for one particular region that I'm interested in, which is the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so Washington and Oregon, those kinds of states, which we don't hear uh, very often much about uh, in the kind of the wider political conversation. But I think those are uh, interesting states to watch because uh, they tend to vote democratically, uh, but there's also a very large kind of rural conservative contingent. And it'll be uh, kind of fun to see if, uh, if uh, those rural conservative contingents uh, can uh, sort of um, can gain more of a footing uh, for the, uh, from the Republican point of view. And maybe uh, there may be some sort of Republican inroads in Senate, ha- Senate races, House races, which might end up um, you know, uh, making uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, uh, an area of contention for Republicans going forward uh, into the future in, in terms of the national picture. And to finish the show, we have two minutes left. So I'm going to go around to kind of each analyst in turn as as quickly as possible. Your prediction, who is going to win the presidency, who is going to win the House and who is going to win the Senate? We'll start off with you, Robert. It is a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I have got Biden on 351 electoral votes um, to win. And that is quite a generous estimate to him, I'm aware. Um, but I think he's going to sweep up in a lot of the tilting states. Um, I do think the Democrats are going to take back the House. I think that one's a dead certainty. I think the Senate is where the real toss-up lies. If um, the Democrats can unseat, um, or not unseat McConnell, sorry, but um, take back control from him for the Senate, I think they're going to have a really um, good two years, at least, in acting legislation. I think Democrats will have control of all two chambers when all things are said and done, though. Thank you so much for joining us um, tonight, Robert. We'll see you later. Over to you, Edwin. Your prediction for the presidency, House and Senate. Um, I got Trump on 326, I think. So I think it would be a solid victory for Trump. Democrat, take the House, and the Senate remains Republican. Edwin, thank you so much for joining us on Raw 1251am. Enjoy your night. Thank you. And over to you, Phoebe, what's your prediction for the presidency, White House and uh, the House and the Senate? Uh, at the moment, I don't, I don't actually have any like, numbers for how many electoral votes, electoral, yeah, electoral votes, but I think I think that 
Biden will probably still win the popular vote as Hillary did in 2016, but I do think that Trump will probably win overall. And again, I do think the Democrats will take the House, but I, I again, I think the Republicans will take Senate. Phoebe, have a great night. Thank you. And finally, over to you, Garke. Your prediction for the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Uh, so I'm predicting a Trump win. Uh, even if by a very, very small margin, I think it might be slightly closer than in 2016 um, in terms of the national picture. Uh, the House is probably uh, in all likelihood going to go to Democrats. And I think Edward, um, sorry, I think Robert is right. The Senate is going to be the toss up and where the action is going to lie in that sense. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In Washington, D.C., the time is now five o'clock. Well, in fact, one minute past five. In a couple of hours, the polls will close in Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, Vermont and Virginia. By the time the morning rolls around in the United Kingdom, we might know a little bit more about who will be governing the United States of America for the next four years. Raw 1251 AM will be broadcasting from 7 AM tomorrow morning with analysis of all the key races in today's elections. Johnny Jenkins will present in until nine o'clock, at which point you will hand the baton back in my direction. Thank you so much for, uh, for tuning in to tonight's election stream and make sure you're following at Raw News Warwick on Twitter for updates throughout the night. My name is Luke James, and you've been listening live to Raw 1251 AM. That's all from us. Good night. Your student radio station on 1251 AM. This is your Raw.